0: What's in store for your business this week at Staples?
1: doing business like a ceo while saving like a cfo staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile now that is an achievement everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars
2: and right now a
0: 12-pack of sharpie markers and an 8-pack of expo dry erase markers are only 4.99 each
1: at staples where there's a whole lot in store ends 119.19 in store only what is at eye level A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines From politics to pop culture From the corporate to the individual Every Monday
3: at 6 p.m. Eastern We take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day Whether it's
1: politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows We discuss everything the corporate media overlooks While making you laugh at the absurdity of it all Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life Just look at the headlines So join me, Matt G And me, Doc Savage
3: Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery,
1: we try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes.
3: At eye Level, bringing more to you.
1: Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. And yeah, now the moment you've all been waiting for. and offer a touch of class as we talk classic British cult television. And we hear two decide to go on. Welcome to the end almost of the second season of Weird Season Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co host, Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight we are uh, fulfilling one of our long held promises, I guess, and moving away from film per se, just talk about uh, television. Uh, we put on a stiff upper lip, though, for a fair touch of class. Like I said earlier, from Cold War and Bond-inspired spy shows to atmospheric occult and sci-fi miniseries and telefilms, we talk everything from Jason King, Adam Adamant, The Persuaders, and The Avengers and all its incarnations, through our sensible children's programming like The Tomorrow People into the Labyrinth, Children of the Stones, The King of the Castle, Zodiac, the yearly ghost stories for Christmas, uh, semi-comic SF oddities like Star Maidens, The Secret Service in Space, nineteen ninety-nine top-notch Brian Clemens thrillers, one-offs like The Nightmare Man, Casting the Runes, and the Louis Jourdan Dracula. Uh, we're going to try to pull in as much non-who British cult telly of the late 60s to mid-80s as we can imagine, or as we can manage uh, within our <laughs> ever-expanding time slot, only here on *Weird Weirds Inside the Goldmine. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, with me here online is uh, my co-host and pal, uh, Mr. Louis Paul. Hello.
3: <laughs> yes, Yes, we are here, and uh, uh, we're hoping that tonight's uh, seemingly epic sounding show will not be longer than a Bruce Springsteen concert. So we're <laughs> we're hoping for that. Yeah, we're going to cover uh, what we okay. can and see where it goes from there. <laughs> I have nothing against Bruce. I went last night. It was three and a half hours without a break. And, and you know, you get physically exhausted just watching it. Of course. Oh, my God. Uh, how uh, but, ship. yeah, we're, we're here to, to do uh, British cult TV something that's near and dear to both our hearts. There's uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, and uh, as usual, if we don't get to it all, uh, we'll probably pick up, we'll pick it up yeah. later on another show.
1: And that's why I think I'm going to leave the Avengers for last because the chances are we will not get to all this. And that way, you know, that can be its own show if it need be. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, we'll touch on it if we can. I'm sure it'll come up just because it's... Uh, kind of influential and plays into a lot of these series that we'll be talking about anyway. Uh, so, uh, I guess a good place to start off then not doing that, well, not necessarily, as a, as a rationale, just in terms of, uh, it's from that time period, and I enjoyed the hell out of it, and you, I believe, at least enjoy the actor, if not the show, uh, Jason King. Um, oh, yeah. It was kind of an offshoot of Department S. We'd seen some Department S stuff, and I... Don't uh, have the whole thing in front of, Oh, there it is. Uh, that show had Joel Fabiani was the ostensible star, but I didn't really find that was true. Uh, what happened was Jason King kind of became the breakout star of that, even though he was much more subdued in that series. Um, Peter Wingard, um, I'm not sure how you would put it. Uh, he was supposed to be... I don't know how he really got involved with these spies. It was like an MI6 kind of a thing. Uh, and... The idea was he was supposed to be an author, like a mystery author or adventure novelist, and somehow they included him or referred to him. He was was like their go to guy, like, okay, what do you think would happen here? Or, you know, how do we get out of this situation? Which is totally bizarre on every possible level. But nonetheless, uh, because he was, you know, in life and on the show, somewhat of a dandy, you know, Peter Wingard was that way. You know, and he came in, especially during that time when you're talking about. It was actually pre uh, John Pertwee on Doctor Who, but we're talking about that sort of almost Austin Powers esque thing. Uh, When we get to Jason King, I'll definitely mention Austin Powers because that was what he was riffing on. uh, Mike Myers, he was riffing on Jason King, Uh, but you know, even here in Department S, when he was more subdued, he's still kind of. Flamboyant, And at the time, like you had mentioned, you know, it through modern eyes, you look at this and you say, God, this guy was flaming, you know, but it's great. You know, you, I get a kick out of it. Uh, but like you had said, apparently during that time, that may not have been the case to, you know, everybody's eyes because people were running right. around like right. this that were, you know, straight scoring chicks, whatever the hell. And they were considered like, "Ooh, look at this guy. He's so hot. Uh, whereas you know nowadays you look, I'm like, yeah, he might have been hot, but the other fellas.
3: <laughs> so uh, well, you
1: know, a, a
3: comparison, a, a, a cultural comparison, uh, if I can, to music is you know that whole Carnaby Street, yes. very fashionable, uh, the mods, dre- uh, men's men's, yeah, yeah, the mods, a very fashionable men's and ladies' dress shops uh, in London. Uh, you know, Hendrix when he was there at the Jones, uh, uh, The Beatles, uh,
1: you know, yeah, you look at the, those
3: types of bands. you yeah, yeah, look at the first
1: 68. couple of Experience albums, he's wearing stuff that's like Jason King, you know, Jimi Hendrix we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, that was, you know, and, and, and at that time, that was, yes, flamboyant and uh, androgynous, you know, early Bowie, you know, too. Yes. He dressed that way. That was, it was cool then.
1: You know, and that you know, was around the time... We're we talk about yeah. Bowie, I just want to jump in with that one. Uh obviously he just recently passed, but you know, I always think of Bowie and everybody's like, you know, they think of him as the Starman and Ziggy Stardust and that whole era insane I always first off I gravitate towards the later stuff that he was doing in the seventies, you know, the, the Berlin period, the thin white Duke stuff, you know, young Americans, Lodger, you know, that whole era in between their low, um even scary monsters. And then it kinda of cuts off for me. But uh, when I think, you know, kind of a joke, like someone mentions David Bowie, one of the first things I think of is that first album he did. When he, you know, I mentioned you know, he's dressed like Jason King, more or less, with like paisley clothes and all the the little ruffles on his sleeves, and yeah. and it's hilarious because he does songs that are about like, you know, some weird relative of his that still like rides around and reads comic books and lives mm-hmm. with his aunts, and uh, what the one about the the happy gnome or the laughing gnome that's in his house. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous sure. shit, but. Very 60s. So yeah, go ahead. You're, you're wrong about the the time period. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So yeah, the time period at the time it was it was cool. Yes, uh, like I said, it was a thought of maybe possibly androgynous, but very hip, very savvy. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
3: as as the, the it, it was kind of a, a not a very long lasting thing. You could see also the influence in something like. Dracula, AD nineteen seventy two, the Hammer film.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know that there's a lot of that fashion going on in there. Not so much in the other film, which is, uh, I think, a year later, uh, Satanic Rites. No, it's kind but, of by that. But Hammer, def- yeah, Hammer definitely picked up on that too. Uh, the, yeah, and I
1: mean, we, I mentioned the mods, but we were talking about stuff like the Who, even. You know, this is a big band that was out there. You know, dressing all Carnaby Street, basically. So this was not mm-hmm. out of the blue. I can see how that happened. It's just, you know, when you look at him now, it's like, yeah, okay.
3: <laughs> you sure should well, what he's with his <laughs> Yeah, and one thing I wanted to
1: say about Department S.
3: Uh, yeah, you're right. It, it was uh, like MI6, but some of the, well, a lot of the, as it, as, it, as, it, as it went on in episodes, it started to get a tinge of a, of oddness about it. Started the the storyline started to become almost Avengers like in a way, somewhat. Yeah, yeah. somewhat. You know, it's from uh, a action, fanciful policier. Then we have the Jason King thing, and then as it went on, and I guess they saw that the lore of Wingard's King character. Yes, the
1: story started to become a little bit more outlandish. Yes, and the thing is that they had originally intended – you can tell just by the way they structured the show – that Joel Fabiani was going to be the – what do you want to call it? The He-Man spy type thing, the star, right. And everybody else was kind of following him, and it it never felt that way. From day one, from episode one, it felt to me like – Okay, well, they're really over-focusing on this horrible Rosemary Nichols, who's kind of like uh, those of you who are into the Avengers. She's like the Linda Thorson of the troop, uh, kind of like, you know, dopey and useless. (laughs) And you're really like, really? Okay, she's supposed to be the computer expert or something, but completely unimpressive and very annoying. And she's got this really snappy way about her where people will ask her stuff, and she's like, Well, what do you want from me? I'm like, oh, my God. And, of course, you know, she's put out there as, like, the sex symbol of the show, which is ridiculous. And I felt there was way too much of a focus on her. And then Hmm. you got Jason King gradually, you know, not so much in the very beginning, but gradually getting more and more important as they saw the fan base building. And, you know, Fabiani, you know, he never made anything of himself. So that was his shot, and he kind of got the rug pulled out from under him with it. So Department S, I mean, a lot of people, especially in England, love the show. I find it a strange one. It's like a transitional show. Uh, it's kind mm-hmm. of like, and we'll get to those later. Stuff like the Saint, how it kind of shifted from being a more ostensibly serious, like the Chart Terrace books. You know, kind of, you know, Vincent Price was the Saint and on the radio, and um, uh, the two brothers there, uh, Tom Conway and George Sanders, were the Saint on the movies back in the '40s. So you get the idea mm-hmm. there. And then all of a sudden, it starts getting more and more. Oh well, they realize that everybody likes, you know, Roger Moore and his quiff, and it starts getting more and more outlandish and more sixties as it goes on. You know, it, to use sixties as a um, a terminology, the descriptor, uh, which is kind of the stuff we're talking about. This kind of paisley psychedelic but the, big but the, low. But, but the early, the early more
3: Saint ones are fairly decent, though. They're they're kind of yeah, harder not and as much you think.
1: Yeah. Well we'll get to that in a minute. I, I was just using it as sure. an example for what happened with Department S here. It feels like that's sort of the transition. Like, okay, well they don't really want to be the serious quote unquote, you know, hard ass show anymore. But they're not quite at the Paisley psychedelic, you know, later Avengers and appeal Avengers kind of thing yet. So they don't it, it's it's got interesting points to it. I do like episodes. But I find a lot of it hard to watch. I'm really sitting there waiting for Jason King to show up and hoping that Rosemary Nichols is like sick for the episode, which never happens. <laughs> uh, but from this show, obviously, came Jason King, which is a really wild show. Um, I would not say that my wife was overly impressed by it. She did like it, but it wasn't mm. like another show we'll be discussing Adam Adamant, where she totally loved this thing, or The Avengers, for that matter, where she loves the show. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jason King was kind of like she watched it, she got a kick out of it she kind of liked him uh, but it was too comic, too outlandish too uh, tongue in cheek and for me though I liked that I was like well, okay it's not like the American shows of that period where you've got this sort of I don't know, it's almost like the monsters that kind of like really safe Midwestern sort of humor and it's not funny and, uh, yeah, he, it's diff- I know what you're saying because it's, it's it's almost difficult to compare it anything right. to on the U.S. Yeah. Exactly. So Jason King say that it was kind of like jokey is not saying that. We are not comparing it to American shows at all. No. But compared uh. to something like what Department S was or some of the more serious shows like the very early Avengers or the earlier Saint or, you know, as we go on, we'll get into right. other shows. It was more, tongue-in-shake, it was more comic. I think even Peter Wittengard himself knew that, okay, yeah, I can take this character somewhere, but it's kind of ridiculous. The guy's a writer. And as it happens, it ends up being just like The Saint, where everywhere he freaking goes, everybody recognizes him, right? Oh, you're Jason King. I love those. that last novel you wrote. When are you going to do a new one? And it doesn't matter where he is. He could be in Russia. He could be in China. He could be in, like, a, a subway tunnel working with gorillas or something. Oh, yes, Jason King. So what the hell is he doing there? You know, what's his purpose, really? And somehow they always have to know, find... Go ahead. You touched upon
3: a very, very interesting little tidbit there. And I don't know how many people have ever caught on to this, but in the uh, middle of the Bond run, uh, specifically the Moore pictures, maybe even mm-hmm. as far as the later Connery movies... I was getting that feeling too. That yeah, you're right. Every bond showed up. Everybody knew it was James Bond. So I like could be checked into a hotel. <laughs> yeah, if you checked into a hotel, hello, Mister Bond, like that famous fucking spy. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very interesting point. I mean, guys, go back and look at the later Connery and, and mid period Moore films specifically. You'll notice wherever he goes, people like not because he's strikingly handsome, but, you know, all these guys were great looking, you know, Yeah. but um, well, but, it's like they knew who they were, you know, because, like, they're famous, and that's the thing it, with Jason King, it was like, he's Jason King, he's like, duh, you expected the man would walk with unaccompanied, you know, like, the, the soundtrack music coming from somewhere, You like, you would think of real life
1: that <laughs> there was a guy like Jason King, with, da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. God, and I The funny thing about this with all of these, with Bond, with The Saint, with, uh, you know, even to some extent with Steve, once you start moving into more of the comical Avengers, uh, and with Jason King, of course, is that everybody knows them everywhere. So, how are they going to be efficacious as a spy or an undercover agent or anything? Everyone knows who they are immediately. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger walking into a room like, Oh, no, I'm not him. I'm Charlie French. No, you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. We can, we can tell. I mean, uh, duh. Uh, and it just became kind of silly. And he sort of knew this. You could tell that he played it to that. I was like, well, you know, this is so ridiculous and over the top. Let's just totally, you know, not only stick the tongue in the cheek, but let's just go for the gusto and make it as camp as possible. And it is probably one of the most outrageously camp shows you're going to see out there, uh, especially in British television of this period. Uh, but, of course, that's part of his charm. And, you know, it's sort of like a spy thing, but... They always have to work – that was the weakness of the show too. They always had to work somehow that he was going to be doing a book tour somewhere, and somehow he would get kidnapped or pulled into one of these uh, – whatever it was. And with something like The Saint, you'll see that that works usually uh, because you know, okay, he's a criminal, and then people pull him in. And they get – help me out kind of a thing. But this guy's a writer. Like, well, okay, maybe you can go with a famous thief. Maybe you can go with, okay, I know this guy's a spy or a cop. You know, give me a hand. I, I think you can help me out. Who would say, you know what, you're a mystery writer or, or an action novel guy. Why don't you go and, uh, you know, help me out to I don't know what, smuggling drugs across from the, the Iron Curtain to, <laughs> to Turkey or something. And whatever it was. And it was like that. It wasn't always something for the positive. Sometimes it was something that was bad. You know, sometimes he'd get involved with... I don't know what, like a white slavery ring or something, and he'd have to break it up. Or and he had a government agent, I guess, coming from the Department S days, that was always tailing him and harassing him. Do you remember that? Uh, I do. I do. Yeah, it was like harassing him while the agent was harassing to write another book. And he would sort of use his experiences to write the books. He had like a secretary or something. There's a dolly bird. Oh, well, put this down. And there was a conceit in there too where. He would get confused, and not necessarily him himself as the character, but uh, people would think that he was the character that he wrote. And even though as uh, uh, Fleming, he took from his experience to write the character, they were two different people. You know, it's like, well, I'm not, you know, whoever it is. It, it, I don't think they called him Jason King, whoever the uh, character was in the books. But was like, I'm not him. I'm, I'm Jason King. You know? And like, oh yeah, sure, you are. Was like this. You save all these people, so I can use you for help. And that's the way they had to write it over and over again. And then it got kind of. Uh, they were really stretching, and that and a sense of ennui sort of they started to drip in because when did that series start? It was like 68, 69, and then all of a sudden you get into maybe 71 or so, and it's like, all right, I think this is kind of over with. You know, The 60s are over with. This period is kind of dying out. Uh, they've done everything they can with this, and they just kind of closed the show out on, I guess, a sour note. The last uh, couple of episodes were not that great. Uh, which you'll see with a lot of these kind of shows, but, but
3: personally, I, I okay. yeah, okay. Well, I'm sorry, uh, but there was something that just came to my mind. In hindsight, I think a lot of people might find this worth checking out or tracking down because if anyone's at all a fan of the the Carry On movies, the Hammer series, uh yeah. every <laughs> and more, <laughs> every actress from Probably a gazillion of the titles we're going to discuss tonight um, we have time for. And all those Hammer films, Lynn Hayden, uh, Valerie Leon. um, Oh, yeah, they all show uh, up in Jason King. That's true. Veronica Carlson, Ingrid Pitt. And sometimes uh, more than once, (laughs) playing different characters, which I always hated, especially in The Avengers. Um, especially if it was a good episode, you know, it's 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 no it's no slag on the uh, on the writers or whatever. It's just like out of the talent pool, they liked working with people, but they could have just cast someone else. And a lot of times they use the same people. And I'm sorry if you are using the same people in the season. Mission
1: Impossible,
3: question uh, yep. also did that. Oh yeah, they were um, horrible.
1: Who was that girl that was in four episodes in a row? You remember she was in the, the Falcon was one of them, the, the one that was like a three-parter. Um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, was that Marianne Mobley? I think so. Maybe. It might have been because she was in it was one season, I don't know, season two, season three, and three or four yeah. episodes almost in a row. And of course, this one was a three-parter. Besides everything else, every, there she is again. And I'm like, really? And I don't think she was the same character every time. She just kept coming back, no, she and then she's gone. She wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, Interesting thing
3: about her. I never liked her, except that in that they <laughs> actually made her look good, but that's another story. Um, yeah, so again, you know, uh, people listening to us talk about Jason King. If you're a big fan of yeah. Carry On movies, British horror, British genre, uh, Slap and Tickle, which we covered a uh, months ago. Um, yeah, you might want well to check this out. You know, if you're like, you don't get out much, and you like this <laughs> kind of... Uh they're, they're they're in the supporting roles. Um yep. Sometimes they're the girls. He's trying to protect... You know, the
1: thing, too, about Jason King is, like, he's a love him and leave him, but you're never sure if he loved him. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. And the funny thing is, okay, you were making jokes about the fact that, you know, Peter Wingrove was the way he was, and therefore it's kind of pushing it to say that he's a ladies' man. But uh in the show itself. It wasn't like the the Saint, you know, Simon Templar. It wasn't like right. any of the shows really that we can name off where somebody, you know, James Bond, where they have a girl that they're protecting, and of course it ends up being a romantic angle, at least for that episode, at least at the end, you know, they make out or whatever. Uh with Jason King it was kinda like he would just kinda say, Oh pour me a drink dear and then sit back in a seat and, you know, toast them or whatever and just be by himself. I just I right? don't yeah. I don't think he ever really no. made out with him, and if he did it was really like kinda like Rock Hudson making out with uh Susan St. James and McMillan and wife. You're like that's something's wrong there. You know, it's like you can tell there's no connection. And yet they like each Doris other, Day. so uh, yeah, right. Same yeah. as Doris Day is yeah, a different story. I wouldn't have a connection with her either. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know uh that's like Saint Sandra D, good lord. Uh but you know she thing, was about, nuts. Yeah, well, the thing about Jason King is that you get the same sort of a talent pool that you're seeing in these other shows like especially The Saint and yet I think they used it better and these girls are prettier yes, they're yes. more upfront. are they look better, they're doing more uh, and you know Peter Wingard is fantastic I mean I love the show, I love the character and I love the guy actually Peter Wingard will get to the Avengers if we do it today or another day uh he was in the one of the more famous episodes, which was the Hellfire Club one with the Queen of Sin. Yes. Uh which if you've seen the pictures of Diana Rigg in that outfit, uh yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely a high point. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, the he British was British black, black and white movie too. Um the Hellfire Club, the, the actual episode, uh the movie rather. Uh he was in that yeah. one as well, wasn't he? He's was in a couple of these things. He's in some yeah. hammer films. Uh, so some hammer
3: films and um Yeah.
1: I always think and of he's him got, being the guy who ran yeah. the Fire Club from that episode. And, and those of you who are Marvel Comics fans, they took that exact scenario, not just him, not just, okay, we're going to take Peter Wingard. We stole his name. Uh, we stole his character. We stole the Diana Rigg character in that episode, and we stole the setting, and they built the whole Hellfire Club thing, which, you know, Sebastian Shaw and all this, they actually sort of incorporated it into the uh, X Men First Class, the first movie, uh, badly. Yeah. but... You know, if you read the comic books, the Dark Phoenix stuff, that's where this all comes from. It was directly, directly from Peter Wingard. It was directly from the Hellfire Club episode of The Avengers. You know, the Black Queen that Jean Grey becomes, that was uh, Emma Keel in that episode. So there's, like, resonances everywhere from uh, – I mean, that's The Avengers. But, you know, Peter Wingard was a big deal for a while. And you would see him pop up and stuff, and he's always um, – if not the standout character, he's definitely noticeable every time. So all oh, no those yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I mean,
1: yeah. And you also had a uh, this is
3: the Peter Wingard hour. Uh, <laughs> he also had a very, very distinct theatrical voice. Yeah. Oh yes, it's yes, very, it's hard yes. to do it, man. I don't. Yeah, I don't, don't know. <laughs> me, the I, I bet so. you. Yeah, yeah. Just go on the YouTube. I mean, his voice was very. Distinct. Very deep, very affected. Maybe uh, I mean not, we're not talking like a senatorial Richard Burton type, you know, somebody no, no. that deep. But he he, de- he definitely when he spoke, he knew it was Peter Wingard.
1: Which is oh my god, Flash Gordon. Yes, you were correct. He was uh, Prince Baron. Oh, was that no way? Baron was uh, uh, no, the no, blonde. he was
3: in the Bloody man, He was the bad guy. He was the villain. Ming Um
1: know. um he
3: wasn't Ming. He was he was the guy in the metallic mask. And uh he was like Ornella Muti's like you know, I was telling her what to do. Ornella movie, Muti was one.
1: We need to talk about yeah. that sometime cuz I love that friggin movie and the cast is amazing. You got Brian Blessed in there. You got uh Timothy Dalton who was actually the guy I just mentioned Baron. Uh and, you know Ornella Muti herself and then you have got Peter Wingard I mean, it's just like, really? This was like a female thing of talent at that time.
3: Yeah, it's the strangest thing because the effects are odd. The the script is odd. The movie's odd. It's made in England, too, of all things. By a British director
1: who's made, like,
3: odd movies that have cult
1: followings. With a weird Queen soundtrack that's world famous to this day. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird soundtrack. And yet, you look at it and like,
3: well, it's not exciting. It's not horrible. It's not great. It's so much fun.
1: I love that film.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I like to look at it a lot. Uh, I I I actually got both of them to sign my laserdisc once. uh, Flash and Dale. Okay. And uh, yeah, back when they made laserdiscs, remember that? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) about laserdiscs. Anyway, Peter Wingard connection to Flash Gordon is. They used him for the voice, but he wears his metallic mask. Um and so you never see his bloody face. And which is a weird thing because you know, he's a very good looking guy, he's very striking looking actually. Yep. And um so they kinda added like a little little uh post op timber in there. Yep. And so he's you now it's a funny thing to cast a guy with a great voice and face like
1: that and to have and not show him. him. Yeah. yeah. Well, they did yes. the same thing with James so Jones and Darth Vader, so there might have been the influence there. Like, okay, let's just take this guy with this wonderful voice and sure. put him in a role where we have anybody cast that. But I just thought of another resonance, which I had mentioned earlier, which was uh, Austin Powers. These- you know, those those films that came about in the nineties with Mike Myers, especially the first one. He was being Jason King. There is no question in the world about this. Anybody that's seen the movie and going back and see the show says, oh, my God, it's Austin Powers. That's who he's doing. Uh, So, you know, again, it was a fun show. My wife, I, I don't eh, know about whatever, about you, but you,
3: but you know. I loved the first Austin Powers. I did. Oh,
1: it was great. I, I actually was a huge fan. Actually, if you have uh, things of our wedding, which took place around that time, I'm actually doing some like lines from Austin Powers thing as part of my speech. I mean, I just love that movie. And then later on, it just became this uh, – I hate to say it, but it was really just childish. It's like all – bad fart. Yeah, the certain one like, was bastard a and all mistake. That. Yeah. Even the second yeah, one was yeah. a mistake. It was just like, oh, I don't know. But the first one was great, and it actually made a commentary on, you know, okay, I didn't agree with the whole politically correct, oh, we got to be adults for the 90s, which is bullshit. Uh, and, you know, back then in the 60s, you were all a bunch of whatever, and clueless misogynists and the hell with you. Uh You need to grow up. I don't agree with that point they were making, but... Uh, no. the film itself was loads of fun and it it was making its point you know it definitely was more than just a comedy uh they were trying to say something however wrong headed uh and <laughs> know, of course you had witcher face there it was gorgeous I, I still love her uh who's the, oh, one? the, uh, the former model um another uh, british elizabeth girl something? elizabeth hurley there you go uh elizabeth hurley yes you know amazing in that yes it's, If you had a cast in Emma Peel analog, you know, okay, we can't get Diana Ray. She's, you know, gotten older over the years. There you go. That was a perfect, perfect choice. So, uh, again, this is all just resonating back to this stuff. And, yeah, yeah. And the woman who played a lot of vagina, whatever her name was. That was a character, folks. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) Uh, She wasn't a kind girl. I can't remember who it was. Uh,. But I mentioned earlier about you know the agent and the uh, the government guy that was chasing Jason King around. Uh, Ronald Lacey was in the show a lot. I think he was yes. the women. Uh And those of you who know your cult film, we've mentioned this many times on the Hammer Show and other British cult film shows. Things like Disciples of Death and uh, Cauldron of – I think it's Cauldron of Blood or was it Cauldron of Death? The one that um, Mike Raven Cauldron did. Of, uh, uh, yeah, I think it might have been a blood. Yeah, I mean, Lacey was just a fantastic sleazy actor. He showed up in uh, wasn't he in Blood on Satan's Claw too?
2: Uh,
1: I just always yes, pictured him as being like a squire type or you know whatever. Uh, but his big his biggest his biggest claim to fame? No, he's he was the baddie in Raiders of the Lost Ark. True. Oh, and you know what? Else? I yeah. think he was in of Dracula as well, wasn't he? Wasn't he one of those, uh, the, the parents that were like, oh, we have, we're the authority figures and you guys can't be messing around because you, people are so filthy and you kids are so terrible. And it turned out that they were all like oh, dirtbags and they had a Kyle club thing going on, <laughs> going to wars and everything. I think, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> he was in that. He might have yeah. played at the front priest, I think. Yep. And look who else is in the show. They least hit points. You know, uh, Dennis Price. Uh, Anton Rogers, who we'll talk about later with uh, Zodiac. I mean, Richard Marner. I mean, these are big names and it it worked. And they were all basically not even sidekicks to them. I mean, with, with Peter Wingard on screen, you weren't really paying attention to the others except for the Dolly Burns, obviously. Yeah. Unless you yeah. unless you went that way and you liked Peter Wingard. But you know what I mean. It's just he kind of has a commanding presence without having to hog the screen. And that wasn't like one of those people like... Uh, I don't know, like a Brando where he walks in the room and he's going to go and step on everybody's toes to make sure he gets the spotlight. But you couldn't miss him. You know, there's no way in hell you were going to miss that he was there. So right. uh, right. I really enjoyed that one. I thought it was a good one to start off with, despite the fact that we went all over the place from it. Um, is there anything else you want to say about uh, Department S or Jason King? No, no, no. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another one that was uh, loads of fun uh, that I still totally love was The Persuaders. Uh, some people think it was kind of failed. Uh, it's Roger Moore after The Saint and I believe before he did Bond uh, and Tony Curtis, who was kind of in the beginning of his down on his luck period, which is actually my favorite period of his, uh, when he started doing things like the Manitou. And, you know, it, all of a sudden he's like eventually down on his road doing Hollywood Babylon and on TV. Well, uh, yeah. There's a huge button that because the
3: persuaders he's freaking great. Yes. he's, he's, he's loads of fun. The, uh, seasons of this
1: yeah. Thing. Yeah. The, the two seasons. Of
3: this season.
1: Yeah. The conceit of this thing is that uh they're all rich and one of the some judge they they had managed to they were both friends with or helped out this one old judge and at the end of it he says, you know, you two should work together for me. For, you know, whatever, basically writing wrongs, and I think he either had something over on them, or he was paying them. I can't remember what the, the actual bottom, uh, yeah, what the purpose was, yeah. but McGuffin basically. But the bottom line was, Tony was supposed to be this rich American, whatever the hell, but, you know, he was... Boy, boy. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, but he was kind of like a um, a street level Bronx kind of guy. Like, you know, Tony Curtis, you know, talk like this. And yeah. then you've got Roger Moore, who's very suave but proper. And the two of them were basically like oil and water, and yet it became a buddy show, which, you know, kind of like a buddy movie, like a cop movie. Uh,. And again, lots of dolly birds. There always, there's a lot of inside or, or surface jokes between the two of them. Like, hey, who's going to score this chick? Oh, you, you got one up on me this time, but next time I'm going to get you. And they would pull gags on each other. Oh wait, you'll screw you screw I, yeah, I, I, you. Your car's going to flat. I'm to drive it? by. Yeah,
3: you got the feeling from watching the show.
1: Not only did they have a lot of
3: fun working together, and if you if you happen to have read Roger Moore's autobiography from about two or three years ago. He said the same thing. Yeah, you know, he had a lot of fun working with Tony Curtis. and and when you watch this show, you can tell, it, you get the feeling that not only these guys have a great rapport, but there's a lot of shit going on off the screen that they're yes. actually riffing
1: on. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's exactly it. You, it, it sometimes with these shows, it comes across like. I heard something the other day. I watch a lot of kung fu movies, especially lately. I mean, I was Shaw sure, Brothers Kick, but you know, I've always watched them. I love them back in the eighties the when they had them on the Kung Fu Theater and all that crap on Channel Five and USA and everything else. And I always, everybody's always like, Oh, one one of the greats, Jimmy Wang Yu." I was like. I never liked the son of a bitch. I always thought, you know, even though the movie (laughs) was okay, I could not stand him. I'm like, yeah, fuck Jimmy Wang Yu. You know, anybody else, even Jackie Chan, who was just doing bad comedies at the time, I could watch more than Jimmy Wang Yu. And then I saw something basically yesterday. And one of them, I don't know if it was T. Lung or if it was David Chang or if it was, you know, in this documentary they had on Chang Che or whatever. Somebody had said... Yeah, that that, uh, Jimmy Wang Yu was like a real bastard. Everybody hated him. He's like the most obnoxious guy (laughs) in kung fu movies. I'm like, yeah, well, it comes across. And that's what happens. Sometimes you get things that you can just pick up, whether subtly or obviously, that are going on behind the scenes and comes across on what you're seeing on celluloid or on television. And in this case, like you said, they had to be having a great time. They had to really like working together. They had to like each other. Uh, because it's just a fun series. I mean, even people that don't like it can't say, "Oh, no, that series is boring." No, it, it gives you a good vibe. So uh, I really enjoyed and, and it.
3: And I think, yeah,
1: and I think it was helped by the uh, fact that for some
3: reason they had a lot of money behind it, and they yeah. were shooting in. They were shooting not only in England; they were shooting in Italy, Spain, France, the Alps. I mean,
1: these guys shot all over the place. And remember, they're both supposed to be rich, so they're always using sets and houses that were like, you know, mansions, palatial estates, castles. yes, Uh. gorgeous, gorgeous, and they have uh, the hottest cars. The cars yes. they were driving—they oh had rival cars, yes—and <laughs> you know, always rubbing it yeah. into each other. You're like, "Oh, you, you crass American!" I'm like, "Ah, you pull a pole out of your ass, you stiff brat!" You know, but they loved each other. You could tell. It was just it was a great it's, show. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing.
3: We're talking about the show. I, I really like it, and a odd
1: thing occurred to me while I was
3: watching the second season that uh, I don't know why uh, this happened. I'm not sure if. It was mandated from the production, or Tony was dying his hair. But, uh, and you can go back and double check me on this, but I am right. On season two, so Tony suddenly goes gray. Yes. And I I, I always thought it was kind of odd, like, you know, like, hey, this is pretty cool. Also, it's like, wow. Because when, when you go gray, your whole facial structure changes, and, you know, your lines become more apparent. It's just the color you hear does things to your face. Right. And, uh, you know, you. Go oh, look at this, you know, these couple of these other episodes. You know, he's, he's uh dark hair, brunette. He looks great. You know, she, you know, strands of gray. And I don't know what happened. Either he didn't want to dye it anymore or whatever, but it was, like, a little jarring because you're like, how much older is this? Oh, it's just next year.
1: Yeah, and I'll go one further because my memory, and I mean, it could be flawed, but is that I actually saw him balding at that point. Uh, where yes. I don't know if he was wearing a toupee and it kind of showed in one scene or something, or if he, you know, he just the hair was thinning out and he was letting the strands and the comb over go. I don't know what the deal was, but I definitely felt like, oh, yeah, you know what? When you said he was going gray, I'm like, yeah, I think he was like, showing that he didn't have any hair. <laughs> so something like that it definitely shows up in the middle of the show. And again, not in the beginning. It was more like, I hate to say second season, but it was later on. But, yeah, uh,
3: it's it's also possible. You know, the other thing too, you got to remember these guys are doing serial television, and uh, they're also working movies. It's also possible yep. he was doing a role in a film that was important to him. And he still wanted to do the second year of the show, and he's like, "Well, you know what? I got to do this, but I got to have my hair this way." And it's probably like a weekend's doing. A, you know, again, it's all conjecture, but it's quite possible this is what happened yeah. as well plausible you know, I'm doing, Yeah, I'm doing this movie, so you know, I I can't go back and forth because you know we know the dies and shit. And so, but you know what? This is much better than the other show, which I don't know if it's on schedule to be discussed tonight. The one with Robert Vaughn.
1: So that's you know, what I was like? going to get to. I was actually next. <laughs> the Protectors. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I never cared for it. I mean, it's okay. It's not like it's a horrible show, but it's boring. It's dry. I don't know if it's because it's Robert Vaughn. You know, I've never been a fan of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Uh, I thought he was always kind of obnoxious on a, on a Jack Palance level, but without Palance's charisma uh, in all the movies <laughs> that he showed up in. Uh, but I don't know. It's just, You've got him. Again, It's they're all supposed to be rich. Uh, it's a Jerry Anderson. Uh, believe it or not, Jerry Anderson did not really do live-action series much. Uh, he was mostly known for like Thunderbirds and things like that. Uh, later on, he did things like Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, uh, but for the most part, he was known for doing puppeteering. You know, what do we call it? Amatronics, or whatever the hell they were. Uh, Super marionation. Super nation That's what he called it. Correct. Uh, yeah. And and we'll mention one later with the Secret Service because that was an oddity. But uh, the Protectors was like I think it was actually his first time delving into live action. And it's got some of that odd feel. I mean, you got Robert Vaughn in there. There was some girl who was supposed to be Italian, but she obviously wasn't. Uh, I think her name was like Porter or something. Uh, oh, it was, and,
3: uh, no, it was Neri Dawn Porter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, there you go. Uh, and then there was this other <laughs> you don't,
3: re, You don't recognize her, right?
1: She, she was like a nobody. Was all, <laughs> she was one of
3: those wannabe also... Star Maiden things, who was
1: like in bit parts. She probably showed it to Jason King.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, star Maidens. We'll get to that one later, hopefully. Um, uh, uh, um, the the
3: uh, Amicus Anthology, which one? The one with the Kirkby. Yeah, House uh, of Drip Blood. Right. She's the mother. Remember the, the Chris Lee's daughter has the crazy doll? Yes. Remember that one? Okay, she's the she's not the mother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no, she was the... Oh, okay. She was the uh, nanny. The nanny in that episode. Oh, the... Cre- okay, all right. But, yeah. yeah, yeah was, so... As far as I know, she no, she's back, back in her life, so...
3: Yeah. <laughs> and there was a guy. There was
1: two or three other people, correct? Yeah. Yeah, there was another guy. Um, Some guy who actually was Tony in the second season of Space 1999, which was terrible, but we'll get to that later. Um, And and a, an a, and a African... Well, he's not American. A black actor...
0: Uh. Yes, Blacker.
1: he was actually the See? the boss, um, and he, he actually had an African name. I can't remember what it was though. Do you, do you remember what the hell his name was? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, but none of them really worked because, I mean, we've had shows, especially once you get later on, the cop shows, and they've all got the ethnic boss of some sort and you usually kind of like, you know, yeah, the, the tough but lovable whatever, and he's usually whatever. It, this guy was just kind of grumpy and serious. You know, you kind of walk in, and he'd always be fixing his suit, he'd lay down some directive and, you know, kind of yell at him and walk out of the room. And Actually, I don't think he even yelled at him because he was kind of calm as I remember. Um, um. But, they didn't seem to work together well as a team. They really no. didn't have personal charisma. It was just... it was Well, tragic. you
3: always got the feeling that
1: nobody liked each other. Oh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they were unlikable and they didn't like each other. Uh, the charisma there, the, the level of personal charisma was in negative numbers. Uh, it's trying to be sort of a, I guess, Avengers-ish show, but... It, doesn't really work at all. Uh, is it with, horrible? With no. A little Mission Impossible thrown in. I think
3: that was an influence. So
1: yes, yeah. you're right. It actually was. Um, and you, like you mentioned, there's stuff in there like you know kidnapping cases and international intrigue cases, and all these shows kind of play together at that period. There was a lot of spy stuff and not necessarily glamorous spy stuff like the Euro spy things or like the James Bond uh, as much as Cold War type stuff. Like, oh, you know, look, these reds or these red Chinese or whatever, they're going to come in and take over this piss-ant country in Central America and we've got to go help this dictator's daughter to, you know, not whatever, get shot by this other group of you know Sandinistas. Or, like, really? I don't care about this stuff. It's like, whatever. Uh, and, so and
0: for some reason,
1: it's for some
3: reason a lot of the episodes were taken up with money laundering. I don't know if this was a Salu sure. Great Salu Great issue. Uh, he was one of the producers, ITC, um, or it was a Jerry Anderson thing. <laughs> uh, it sounds yeah, like great Disney, a, you're right.
1: It's like that Scarlet yeah, Pimpernel sort of thing. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. It was like four or five, four or five episodes. And sometimes they were two parts as well. Um, we we have money in a suitcase, but we have to trick the other guy. Who's supposed to? Who fucking cares?
1: You know <laughs> what it is? It's you're right though. You actually picked it up. It's just like the Martin Scurley thing. When he's screwing over all these everyday people that are like, you know, right. all of a sudden screwed over, they can't get their AIDS drug or whatever the hell, because he decided to go make all this money off being a shitheads. No problem. But as soon as he goes and like screws over some Wall Street rich asshole, bam, he's in jail. So, same thing here. That that was the Lou grade influence. You're right. I I resent that part, too. Another reason the show was kind of hateful. Um, But... Robert uh, Vaughn's presence is, you know... uh, He never has a presence. He's always kind of obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks he's important, Uh. he's not. You know, it, it was like... I, I mentioned to you off air. We were talking about Mission Impossible, and uh, around the same time, we actually saw the movies over the summer. We saw the Mission Impossible and loved it uh, for what it was—you know, cartoony crap and Tom Cruise and everything. But, but and you then we liked saw. It. You liked it. Yes, I recommended it. We did it. like it. You recommended it, and I did like it. And then we saw The Man from Uncle, which we both loved. It was hilarious, and everybody hated the movie. Uh, loads which of fun. I so, finally saw. It.
3: I I finally saw that you did recommended you like it? that. You know what? No, 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 no Oh, come on The first half hour I was thinking I'm not sure what's going on Because
1: the tone was all over the place Yes But I loved it by the end yeah, see, that's what I mean. I went in there. I was like, okay, well, we'll see how bad it is. I'm figure it's gonna be halfway serious with a little bit of comedy thrown in, and it wound up being this like likable buddy comedy. And you figured he was gonna get together with a girl, but no, the Russian guy does. And, and you, you know, this is my problem with the original series. We went back then after this from seeing his movies. We both liked them both. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, my wife's watching Mr. Impossible, and she fell in love with the series. More than me. I enjoyed it, but she totally fell in love with it. So we got that box set that I was talking about. with the, It was like a dynamite uh, thing there. It's great. Uh, but we also tried out, uh, you know... Uh, Man from Uncle. Man from Uncle. And it yeah. was as horrible as I remembered it. And it had William Marshall in it, so I should have loved it you know, from the pilot. It was horrible. I'm like, you know, these two football-headed fucks. they like... But like, I don't know. They look like they're five foot one if that. Uh I don't know how tall they really were, but that's how they felt in the cast. With these like funny like anvil heads and they're like walking around like, Oh yeah, I'm so hot. The one guy's so obviously British, but he's pretending to be Russian. At least in the movie the guy actually kinda acted Russian and he was like a big bull clerk guy like Dolph Lundgren. This guy was just like really? He did a good job too,
3: actually. I-, I can't
1: say his bloody name. I don't know why his mother didn't change his name. Arm and Hammer or whatever it is. Yes, you're but, right. It was Arm and something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Hammer. Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. like a joke of Arm and Hammer. Like, <laughs> no, Arm and yeah. Hammer. Mm. Um, he, he's going to go clean out your refrigerator for you. <laughs> <laughs> he did. No, he was really good. And was. Superman was was a lot of fun. You know? <laughs> yeah. and no, I wasn't expecting that. I was like, oh, okay, this is a guy from Man of Steel. He's going to blow. He was great. Uh, not as good yeah. as the other guy, but it was you know it was a fun movie. But watching the show, I'm like, this is as hateful as I remember that she didn't care either. I'm like fine, hateful. So Robert Bond <laughs> to me is always like, eh, piss on his head. <laughs> He's like worthless. People love him, but yeah, I don't get it. I like, uh, I like the football quote. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They got like my father used to call football heads. We knew some guy in town that had a head like that. It's like an anvil, you know. It's like flat on top, like almost like flat top from the the uh, what you call it comics, the Dick Tracy comics. And then it comes down to yeah. like a triangle to a point by the time you hit the chin. And he's got these little tiny scrawny bodies with these big football heads on top. Like really? <laughs> Ooh yeah, sexy. And of course, apparently women loved them back then. I don't know. But anyway. Uh, so I don't really care for one. I don't care for this show. I don't care for that show. Protectors was a lot better no. than my Uncle, but I think I think it did make
3: it to a second season, though. I think did it. I, I think, think it did. did. I think it may have. And the funny, you know, when you when you're Jerry Anderson and you know against Sir Lou, Grade, you know, ITC was really big back in the seventies. So yes, was, it there was. Like, put the money behind everything. and film. Um. Thames Television, too. They was putting money into that stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, when you're that big and you've got a product, actually, I think ITC also maybe had some money in the Persuaders, I'm not sure. But, when you, you know, <laughs> when you're that big, if you like something, you're going to keep promoting it. But I think at some point you said, this is a losing prospect. Nobody's watching yeah. it. It sucks yeah that's <laughs> that's
1: it. it. and it was kind of like a bottom of the barrel when, when they started putting out the DVDs or A&E or it was years ago it was like scraping the bottom of the barrel like, okay we got everything else possible except for Jason King which came out later with some other company for some reason uh everything uh, else
3: they grab like, like the like the boutique genre labels of today they're so bloody expensive
1: exactly but everything else possible was out and i'm like okay i guess we'll do the protectors too and yeah nobody bought it yeah, it was a piece of crap, crap. um so, but Jerry Anderson uh, did kind of make a uh, what do you want to call it? He uh, saved his own name by doing the first season of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine a couple of years later. Um, this actually was kind of a savior for we mentioned Mission Impossible, uh, Barbara Bain and Martin Landau because at the time, I'm not sure why they left Mission Impossible after two seasons, and there is a clear drop in quality. I have to admit that you know as much as I we're talking they, about- I think they were there longer than two. Yeah. Was it? Okay, I maybe mean, it was three then, but it yeah. wasn't that long considering how the many seasons there were. Uh, you know, actually, you're right. It was three seasons. Sorry. Uh, but. We were watching it, and I was like, you know, you heard me making jokes back and forth about how the plot statement tend to be the same things and how it was kind of silly have uh-huh. her, like the hot one all the time when she's obviously aging, and you know, him and his man of a thousand faces, he always had to play a Nazi, and I was like, really? They can't tell it's him? Uh, you know, his his faces are kind of distinctive, you know, like, really? It's like alias. Like, you can't tell that's her? Come on. <laughs> but it's the same kind of a thing. And yet, when they left... We're like, "Huh, oh, the show doesn't feel the same anymore. You know, Peter Lips is still there. Greg Morris is still there. Uh, it was a big improvement bringing in Peter Graves over the original fella. But, you know, it just, it feels different. It was missing something. So I don't know why they left. I'm not sure what the story was. But during that period of time, you know, apparently the two of them were big drinkers. And they kind of, I guess, got a reputation. that they, they, they were, as I understand it, sort of blackballed by the industry. They weren't really getting work. Uh, for a couple of years. Ago. I don't know how many years it was. might have been four or five years. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he went and hired these two, which was, I, I believe, it was considered kind of a risk at the time. It was a little bit of a brave move. Uh, but he brought the two of them in to Deuce Space 1999, which was uh, before Star Wars and after Star Trek. But, you know, the Star Trek phenomena that really occurred on the campuses in the 70s, because Star Trek was on in the 60s, a couple of people watched it, it didn't really make that much of an impression, but in the 70s, all the kids on the campus reruns. discovered it. And in the reruns, they saw the political messages, they saw the progressive thinking, and all of a sudden, it became this cause celeb that it is to this day. Uh, so during this period, the middle, the height of this, this huge rediscovery of Star Trek, is all right. all well, right, I want to make a space opera sort of a thing. And he made this thing uh Space nineteen ninety nine, which was a really strange concept because apparently they had actually co opted the moon and like put like rockets and stuff on it and used that as the colony to you know, because Earth had blown up to go and search through space to try to find another place to live. Uh and you know, there were but they had their own-
0: that, that
3: That happens sure. in the first episode. Breakaway. Yeah. Yes. That's it doesn't it doesn't blow up right away. It blows up in that first episode. And you know Landau, the first
1: season they're all really good they're all really yes. good I I not can't the, fault. the first season yeah. it, it saved their careers and I don't know what they did after that for a long time before his you know Oscar for you know basically playing an old Jewish man which was supposed to be Lagosi and uh you know Ed Wood uh which is hilarious because it was so not Lagosi it was just like you know hey what you're an old Jewish man yeah, okay give him an Oscar sure <laughs> I right, fine whatever smart Landau. I don't care but uh you know during this period, it was like, "Okay, you know it was the same sort of a vibe uh as they were doing with Mission Impossible, maybe a little bit more laid back. you know there was obviously lower budgets, it was a little bit more serious and depressive, I guess because they were in England. But that first season is really, really good it It does have a very British Star Trek sort of a feel." Uh, you know, they do always go down, they investigate planets, they're always looking for what happens. They don't really have a, a red shirt crew that always gets killed off, but it feels that way. You know, there's always like mm-hmm. the secondary people. Barry Morse is in there doing a good supporting role, kind of like um, Bones McCoy. Uh, you know, it's... it's Mixed with Spock. Mixed with Spock, yeah. Yes, a little bit of Spock in it too. But it was really, really good. I'm like, wow, this is great. And then you get to the second season. I don't know what happened. What a mess. Uh, well, it, uh, showrunner.
3: Showrunner. You know, that's what plagues a lot of our favorite shows. You know, uh, I'm sure for yourself and myself. If there's a show you really like, fucking AMC does this all the time with uh, Walking Dead, which is a show I like a lot. They keep changing, actually firing showrunners because they just, I don't know, the people who have money... They're the ones that want to change the direction. <laughs> and even the... We're, we're losing uh, Doctor Who showrunner. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, coming up.
3: Yes. Yep, Moffat's gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, so, he's going to do uh, a couple
1: more episodes, but he's gone. Yeah.
3: yeah, so showrunner change, I think, had a lot to do with the whole vast shift in space 1999.
1: Some of the... And they added... Who did they add? She was... Well, a, they added... Uh, yes, this beautiful girl, but it was a horrible role. After um, the show. Captain Schultz, thank you, uh, who was also on City of Death on Doctor Who, which is one of the people's most loved episodes. Um, very beautiful girl. Uh, I believe she was German. And yet the show went right, directly. I mean, from episode one, like, oh, my God, who flushed this down the toilet? Uh, it was kind of like when you see season three of Star Trek the original series yeah. and all of a sudden everything is dark and they're reusing everything's in like these dingy sets and they keep reusing, um, you know, I don't say reusing sets and, you know, cutting off lights and it, it felt worse than that. And I was like, Oh my God. And then they brought in this fellow, like I mentioned, Tony, who was on the protectors, who was terrible. Uh, he became like the new lead basically. Uh, mm. and it felt very like they were going for kiddies all of a sudden. It was like a child show. Uh, there was more aliens and like, you know, goofy aliens, like who, oh, oh, look, I'm the, the goofy alien guy. You know, it was almost like a Saturday morning cartoon in a way. And of course, you know, when we were children, I even have friends that still to this day talk about, you know, how hot she was as, you know, Mara or whatever, how she was and how they loved the mm-hmm. second season. And I'm like, yeah, you haven't seen it in 25, 30 years. Have you buddy? <laughs> Cause it sucks. Uh, so, well, it, you know,
3: it's, it's also, it's also the scene, uh, um, uh,
1: Basis UFO.
3: Yes. You know, another yeah. Jerry Anderson show.
1: You know, UFO was uh, strange though. I mean, if you want to talk about that, we can. I mean, I I haven't seen too many of them, but I was like, wow. And I think Catherine Show was in that You don't have the box, right? Well. No? <laughs> no, 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 I have the box. Uh, set. Do you really? <laughs> I watch it, but I want to see
3: some colorful UK stuff. You know,
1: you know. Really slow Catherine Show <laughs> was in that one too, but I think towards the end, and she uh, wasn't. Uh, I guess she was more of like Erica Blanc when you see her in the very early to mid sixties, as opposed to when you see her more towards the seventies. She wasn't quite that, you know, level of sexy yet. She was still kinda of more um I guess early Soul of Miranda, like if you saw her with the, the Sydney Pink film there, Pyro and uh, uh Sound yeah, of Horror. Yeah. You know, it, it's that, that kind is, of yeah, it, you don't really see why people like this person yet. It's like, okay, well, she's attractive, but so what? And then later on, she becomes like, oh, my God, yeah. Uh, she wasn't there yet with right. UFO. UFO was strange. I mean, what I saw of it was just kind of like, what are they trying to get at here? <laughs> but go ahead. If it's very kind of strange. Saw- yeah. yeah, well,
3: you know, they, they most they, uh, no of the guy, uh, he's been in a lot of stuff. They cast a Canadian uh, as the lead. Um yes. He's supposed to be an American, though. You know, he's talking very American. You know, Canadians when you speak American. Like, <laughs> what well, is the guy in those Roger Moore Bond movies from Canada? He's like, you know, uh, he's like a bit part guy. He's like, he's always talking like that. You know. Anyway, they cast this guy. Like, don't ask me his name because I don't want to reach for the box set. And um, it's a very strange show because it 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 hovers between. Simplicity, yes, you know, it's sort of like um, with the Quinn Martin, The Invaders, which is a very unusual show, maybe something was much upon one day, which was harder read sci-fi, maybe a bit too violent for TV back in the day. And so it's got some stuff that's pulling in from the air, but it's got the colorful mid-to-late 60s kind of like crazy color stuff bursting in your eyes, and all the women in this show are wearing, like, silver wigs in the first season. the second season, they're wearing different.
1: That's part of what I thought was green It's Like, they all look the same. Not really, but from the wigs. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know. And they, they have, like, the zip-on, zip-on, zip-on. Uh, uh, well, that's like, basically, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and the funny thing is that the few scenes that are outside, the cars are from Antonio Margariti's Wild, Wild Planet. You remember those old <laughs> <little bubble laughs> yes. cars? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, this is a very strange show. And this is, I think, it's very downbeat. Like, episodes end with, like, we're not winning. You know? So that's the Invaders uh, influence, I think. It's a very strange show. And uh, I put it on every so often if I want to watch some wild, blasting colors coming at me. But um
1: <laughs> <in terms> of, <laughs>
3: it's a very colorful
1: show. In terms of depth
3: of story, I don't know. Oh, there's nothing there, yeah.
1: There's nothing there. But it's a Jerry Anderson, though. And just keeping with the Jerry Anderson theme, the one other one I wanted to cover was actually one of his half, half of a Mary Nation show. And half of it was sort of live action, which was the Secret Service. Uh, it's probably the last and strangest of his um, Super Marionation sort of things, but they actually used a lot of live- action footage of cars driving away and you know actual people walking around and whatever the hell else, uh, and then they go back to the puppets, again, the marionettes. And it's really strange because first of all, the whole conceit, which is why I picked up I was like, "Wow, this sounds totally screwed up uh, the guy is a Catholic priest. Uh, or a, you know a vicar or whatever the hell they have over there. Uh, it might be an Anglican vicar. So uh, same idea basically for those who you know don't know the difference over here in the states. Uh, and he's secretly a spy for the government, and he has this guy who's a gardener, and he talks like this, you know, very you know like sort of a half-ass Welsh. And he has this weird thing where there's like a suitcase that he has that shrinks this guy down. To like doll size, and all of a sudden the guy starts talking normally, you know, with a British voice, uh, as opposed to talking like this. And (laughs) they go around doing these sort of, um, you know, what do you call them? Spy things. But it's ostensibly a kid show, and yet the vibe on it is very odd and hammerish and adult feeling, you know, and there's like, you know, they're playing the church organ music the whole time. Yes. They have the little smiley ending every time. Uh, one of the weirdest things about it apparently is the guy, I don't know who the hell's father on you know, Stanley, I don't know what this is, but apparently he was some bad, you know, vaudeville comedian over there, musical comedian, that his whole thing was he made up this sort of gibberish that he would talk when he got nervous and all his sentences didn't make any sense. Now, why this would be funny to anybody on Earth, I have no idea. But apparently, he was a comedian, and he brought this to the character. So, here you go. This Catholic priest, he goes and he gets, you know, they they go with his little guy that's the, the miniature, whatever Stanley hell's name was, uh, and they get caught at some point by you know the spies or whatever the hell they were, the kidnappers, and he'll try to talk his way out of it using this gibberish, and the people look like, what? What are you talking about? Very, very bizarre show, but because the live action stuff is in there because of this odd um quiet yet sort of dark and I hate to say depressing, but you know very English of the period, especially feel to it uh. It really stands out. It's not like okay, I'm gonna watch Thunderbirds or Go or some crap. No, no, no. It feels nothing like that. This is a very unique show, and I don't think that anybody that likes something like Thunderbirds would like this show. But somebody that likes something odd, like you know, God knows, The Protectors, would probably love the shit out of this show. I thought this show was great. I really did get a kick out. I was like, this is the strangest goddamn thing I've ever seen in my life. But you know, it was it was enjoyable, and I watched them again. You know, it's something that I would go back to every so often. Uh have you seen this one? I I have and I agree. It's very
3: strange. I also think that coming off of Captain Scarlet, which also has a lot of unusual stuff going on in it. There's a, always an opening every time of somebody being assassinated and dying turning into somebody else. It's a very strange area in the show, Captain Scarlet. Um I think Elements from there Probably bled into Secret Service, you know. Um, I don't. I Secret Service. Yeah, I don't know why the he made this thing. I don't know what he was thinking because <laughs> it's no. Well, it's not for children. It's not for oh. uh, savvy adults
1: might get it, but really, and you can't really say teenagers. You have to say no. A very particular you audience know, would love this, and other people would be like, what the fuck was that shit? You know? <laughs> Why is this guy a priest? Exactly. Why is this guy a What's going on here? Why is half the time it's a live-action person you know, looking out the window or driving down the road and the other half the time they're puppets? I don't get it, but, you know. But, exactly. you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very strange so combination of live-action and puppets. Uh, so Jerry Anderson, a strange man. <laughs> we already dressed like four of his shows here. Uh, so... Another one that we should probably get to at some point here is Hammer House of Horror because it was right around the time that Hammer had stopped making films. Uh, They had made To the Devil a Daughter with Nastassja Kinski and Honor Blackman uh, and Richard Widmark, I believe, was even in the damn thing, uh, towards the end of their – actually, it was their very last film. Uh, And I love that film to death. Yeah, we we talked about it during the Hammer film days. Uh, the family from show, I should say. Uh, I love the yeah. shit out of this. I think it's one of the better ones, but people hate it. They find it strange. It's very dark. Okay, fine. But nonetheless, <laughs> they, they, had okay, fine. <laughs> they had stopped production. They had stopped production. So now what are they going to do? So, somebody, I guess it was one of the Carreras uh, kids or whatever, had pulled together maybe three years later. Uh, says, yeah, why don't we move into TV? We'll try a venture there. And they did, a, I guess there's 13 episodes of bringing the Hammer Horror feel with a bit of like an amicus kind of a thing to television. And you know, some of those episodes really freaking work, and you have weird people show up in these things. You know, The first episode, you've got John Finch and Ian McCulloch in there from the Fulci films, uh, and of course John Finch from uh, Hitchcock's Frenzy. Um, you know, then you've got people like, you know, Norman Bird, you know, who's a comedian, uh, Peter Sasty directing some of these, Denim Elliott was in one, um, uh, just skimming through the list here. Uh, Barbara Kellerman. Oh, I, I remember a really, a
3: really good one with Ian Carmichael. Remember Ian Carmichael? Yes, I do. Oh, uh, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, he was in a really oh, good that one was, of those, yeah. Um... Jeffrey Beavers, who was the master, uh, one of the masters, and he does it now with Big Finish, uh, was in one of these things. Um, Let's see. I know there was one. I'm not seeing it yet. That uh, Avon from uh, Blake 7, Paul Darrow was in with Angela Bruce, of all people, uh, who was Brigadier and Baron Doctor Who. Uh, And that was really good. I think that was Charlie Boy. It was one about like a voodoo doll. Um or maybe it was the one about the mirror, the mirror where they go to hell or something like that. It really, you know, these films they're basically the typical hammer, you know, every time it's gonna be a little spooky. A little bit of rolled Dolls, uh, Tales of the Unexpected, if anyone remembers that series. Uh, you know, a dash of Night Gallery, uh, but very, very hammer. And the people that they got in these were pretty damn interesting. Um Janet Fielding was in there again from Doctor Who. Um she was uh, Keegan. Oh, uh Peter Cushing a- showed up
3: Paul Katner just died. Ooh, really? Oh, yeah, shit. yeah. Sorry, sorry for the non related thing, but this
1: Death. year has been so many freaking star deaths. And, you know, Bowie aside, that's probably the one that's going to hit the hardest for me because I'm sorry, I unapologetically love the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, the Starship, yeah, whatever, who cares? But, you know, the airplane was the shit. I actually have vinyl copies of, like, Crown of Creation and stuff. I mean, and and the one that came out before it, um, after bathing at Baxter's, uh, that was stuff that I was listening to when I was, like, you know, 16 to 21. And I was really kind of hardcore on the whole hippie movement. And, you know, they were very political, unashamedly political, and yet they were very psychedelic and very catchy and uh, very experimental. And that was an incredible band. They brought in folk. They brought in rock. They brought in jazz. Frank Zappa was uh, brought in to produce uh, After Bathing at Baxter's. I think he backed out, but he did one or two tracks on it. Um, You know, uh, it's... What are you going to say? I mean, everybody ages. People are uh, getting on in life here. Uh, Grace Slick has long since become a joke, and uh, she was, I think she's like a painter or something now. Uh, 74, there you go. Uh, you know, and I, you can't forget crap like the KBC band and stuff they did in the 80s. But, you know, back in the 60s, that was that was the shit. I mean, uh, even at uh, Woodstock, the parts that were edited out that they put back in for the special, uh, Jefferson Airplane was—it was a major voice for a generation at least. Uh, and to see that that's gone now. You know, up against the wall, motherfuckers, and all that stuff, that was... <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Crazy. hear him breathing, folks.
3: Oh, there you are.
1: Oh, there you are. Okay. Did I drop off for long? <laughs> you, You did for a little bit. Okay, well, anyway, uh, what I was saying while I apparently was off air, or off mic, was uh, that, (laughs) you know, I don't know when I left the I've been talking about the Jefferson Airplane or something still, but Hammer House of Horror, I just wanted to wrap up on that one. Uh, It was a very good series in terms of uh, people who like things like, you know, later Hammer, who like amicus films, who wanted to see more teeth and better stars to something like Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. Uh, so anything you wanted to add about that one? No, no, I I
3: think, yeah, I think we pretty much covered that one. Uh,
1: so there's another weird one that came out uh, from ITV, which was Sapphire and Steel. I, oh. don't, I don't understand the series to this day. There was a couple of episodes oh, good, that sure. I liked. I, I was afraid you were going to say you liked it. <laughs> no, no, I don't get it. Uh, there was a couple of episodes that I liked just for the strangeness of it. Uh, there was one, actually, that the one that always stands out in my head, was they went to some, it was basically like a gas station that had a uh, cafe in it. And there was always people stranded there, and they seemed to be from different time periods. Uh, and there was nothing outside but blackness. And, of course, all this intrigue was going on. Somebody else showed up, and then people were getting murdered and whatever. But the show made no freaking sense. I know that there was supposed to be some sort of... Time travelers are agents of, like, chaos and order or some crap. Uh, they had these weird, like, sequences where the two heads would talk to each other. It was Joanna Lumley, of all people, from, you know, Patsy from AvFab and also uh, from the later New Avengers. Uh, she was Purdy. And, uh, of course, she's in Hammer Films and whatever else, favorite. too. Which... David McCallum. Oh, yeah. So, say, what else is my favorite? David McCallum from uh, one of the football heads there <laughs> from... <laughs> But I will say that McCallum, his career after uh, Man from U.N.C.L.E., I did like him and stuff like Dogs. You know, he was he was the okay there as the drunk, uh, Sapphire and Steel. He put a lot more, uh, to the extent that they're supposed to be these weird personality lists, uh, whatever the hell they are, time travelers, or agents, or whatever, he had a lot more humanity to him than Joanna Loma's character did. So I like David McCallum afterwards. It's just that show, he was terrible. Uh, of course, that show well, was terrible. You know,
3: one of the problems with this show was that the uh, I felt, for me, was that each episode, wait, I think they were trying to. Trying to rip on the Doctor Who thing there. Each yeah, but it didn't work. Was like
0: three,
3: yeah, each. I, I said that wrong. Not each episode was three episodes, but each story was like three to four episodes. And they were bloody long, too. Yes. They were yes. like an I mean, hour
1: long. Watching so you had three or four episodes of this storyline, and it was maybe five or six stories, was painful sometimes. I'm like, oh my God, is this ah. going to end? <laughs> and nothing happens. Mind you, it's kind of like. Uh, the Warriors Gate episode of Doctor Who, where you know they're just kind of standing around there in an the empty set. This is what Sapphire Steel was like all the time. Uh, you would be there for you know fifteen minutes, an hour, and there'd be one set, and people would just stand around, sort of talking in cryptic fashion. You know, they wouldn't even spell it out. It wouldn't be like a dialogue that would engage you. People would spout a strange word or two here and there. It was like worse than a pinter play. I mean, I don't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there was that
3: one, that one, that one storyline about ghosts. Do you remember that one?
1: Yes, I do. Was
3: it one in the subway?
1: With the old time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand it. Yeah, I and that but was there, actually the worst one. Thing. I ran six points. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, and 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 there are people who really love the show. I remember. Oh, yeah. Back in the uh, my days of trying to collect some obscure Brit. TV stuff. We're going back a while, guys. Um, People are like, I have this. It's in, like, fuzzy vision because it came through some Albanese-Turkish border (laughs) cable television signal. And like, you will look at this fuzzy shit like, what? And then it, you know, then it finally came out through whatever you could get it from overseas. But it was like,
1: it's not worth the wait. (laughs) Yeah, I think A and E put it out somewhere, Acorn. But eventually,
3: eventually they did. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just that one episode aside, which I sort of like, just because it's so strange. The one where they're in the gas station uh, lobby or whatever, with all these people getting killed off in the garage. That one I sort of like. That's the one I always think of with it. But. Still, the show makes no sense whatsoever, and I don't understand the, like you had mentioned, this huge cult that's built up around it, You're not right. just from is, the yeah. 70s generation, people that grew up with it, but later on, like even more recently. I mean, they had some audios of it, and people are still like, oh, they're going to bring back Sapphire and Steel out here. They're going to do it again. Why would they want to <laughs> do this? It didn't make any sense then, but I don't know. Well, that they
3: could. It. They could, but, you know. <laughs>
1: um.
3: Just an absolute movie, for crying out loud. I mean, I'm surprised. How many years later is this? Oh, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, it's going into production. And I'm like, well, that's just like their Mr. Bean movies going to production, like years after the interest of Mr. Bean has <laughs> abated. Because yeah. Saffron's
1: still it was 79 to 82. So that's quite huh? a late. Um, Anything's possible. I, I wanted to mention in passing, The Young Ones, anybody that grew up on early MTV uh, is sure to be familiar with it, if not a fan. Uh, I know I was. Uh, it's Watching it these days, it doesn't hold up that much. It was trying to be sort of a modernist take, like a more punky take on uh, Monty Python, I guess. Uh, And you've Mm -hmm. got like Punk Rocker and you've got sort of the the more gothic uh, New Waver type and you've got the hippie guy. And then I don't know what the hell the midget guy was supposed to be. He was always the brains of the operation. I I guess they acted like he was going to be the ladies man, but he was all three foot two. And of course, he wound up on Ab Fab as the the put upon husband Marshall. (laughs) Uh, But. It was an odd show. They had a lot of strange humor, a lot of non sequiturs and stuff. I always loved like when they had uh, the refrigerator, like the, the, the fruits and vegetables would like talk to each other about how crappy the place was. Uh, there's an unforgettable song there about uh, basically making fun of the punk rock scene and uh, its politics. Uh, Doctor Martin's boots, uh, which is basically like you know the only thing that keeps us together is Doctor Martin's boots, and you know, this big fat guy, Alexis Sales, and dance around like an idiot in Doc Martens. Uh, those of you who are punk will probably get a big kick out of that. Uh, you know, they had episodes where they would have music stars at the time. And you had anybody from, like, freaking Motorhead and The Dam and stuff like that to, you know, somebody bizarre like, I don't know, you know, Dixie's Midnight Runners or The Jam or somebody like that. Uh, you know, it's a really quirky show with very strange humor that if you like something like a Monty Python, you may like it as well um uh, but if you don't and or you're a little bit more mainstream like my wife's like what the fuck are you watching <laughs> and why <laughs> why did you get this uh it, you know but i wanted to mention in passing because it is something that i used to enjoy and that a lot of people of my generation were big fans of uh, it, do you have any uh take on that one? Oh, <laughs> no um <laughs> uh, Let's see. How about uh, the Checker's Guide to the Galaxy? I saw the movie when it came out, and I was like, what a piece of shit. Uh, the original miniseries was loads of fun. Uh, you had basically Douglas Adams, who was a Doctor Who uh, script writer, and um, one of the two head uh, producers or whatever during a, a year or two there. I think it was like 79. Uh he had his own little comedy sci-fi thing going on which was originally i believe a bbc radio uh, production so they had like these i don't know if it was daily or weekly uh, radio dramas that were another installment of this going on and then they had taken it and he wrote these books and then they turned the books into uh and the books were very popular uh, anybody who's around the 80s so before William Gibson and Noromancer, if you knew anybody that was sort of science fictiony and geeky they were practically worshipping Douglas Adams they always had one of the hitchhiker books you know so long and thanks for all the fish whatever the hell uh, He they took this book and made it into this mini series, and it is loads of fun. I remember my father loved this show, uh, and Mm -hmm. you know, he was pretty salt of the earth in a lot of ways. So, to say that he really got a kick out of this, even though it was so strange and filled with you know, again, like non sequiturs, it was a bizarre sense of humor that was informing this, uh, is saying a lot that he really loved this thing. Sandra Dickinson was in this, and so was her then-husband, who was the future Doctor Who, Peter Davison. He was the dish of the day in one episode. Uh, Valentin Dial, uh, those of you who know... uh, Even Doctor Who, let's just go from there. Uh, He was the Black Guardian during the Tom Baker Key to Time season. Uh, Dave Prowse was in the damn thing. Uh, It was an interesting, funny, bizarre show where... Kind of like – I think a lot of the new Who stuff was informed by by this because essentially they went to the end of time. The the guy came in and basically the Earth was considered a backwater piece of shit, and these cosmic developers said, you know what? I'm selling off this property, and we're just going to bulldoze this crap planet so I can go and sell this galaxy to some other high alien bidders. Uh, you know, really black humor like that. And the guy's like waking up one day, and he goes to the bar, and he gets his peanuts or whatever the hell. And he's walking around in his bathrobe, and all of a sudden this guy shows up, essentially out of a time machine, kind of like Doctor Who, and says, Oh, here you go. Uh, you better come with me, because your planet's going to be raised in about 10 minutes. He's like, what? <laughs> and then they end up taking him out into space, and he takes him on all these adventures. Uh, I really think, to a large extent, uh, the David Tennant and especially Matt Smith eras of Doctor Who were very, very informed by the original miniseries of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, the the companions are so Ford Prefect and uh you know, or, or should I say Arthur Dent. Uh and you know, prefect going and taking him around the galaxy and just being kinda of like, Yeah, well, whatever. Here by the way, here here's your planet getting blown up and oh here's the end of time and here's where the sun gets eaten and oh here's these strange space parts or foreheads. Don't worry about it, you'll make friends with them. And then kinda of wandering off was very much those doctors. Uh so I think that just on that level, there is a huge interest for Nubians to go and check this thing out. The movie was kind of an abomination. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, it was not true to the spirit at all. Uh, I've had friends who said, oh yeah, they really like what Most deaf did with the role. You know, I have no problem with Most deaf, but it was not the same thing at all. I and mean, it was a completely different animal. Uh, you had that mopey robot that was suicidal. The only line that I liked in the movie was when they did that thing about like, oh, I can handle this. Watch. He's a big moment to be heroic. I'm British. I know how to handle this. We we know how to queue up like nobody's business. And that's all it was, was he knew how to stand in line to wait for something. <laughs> it's like, so you know that was the kind of level of humor you're talking about with the movie. The TV series was just insane, and they would have these little guides from – every so often they'd interrupt whatever was going on with bits from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this uh, basically a um, diary of each planet or whatever the hell. And they would give you little facts that were completely absurd about whatever kind of aliens they were running into or whatever, uh, history. Uh, I really, to this day, love this thing like you would not believe. But I think a lot of people forgot about it, not only because of time and uh, distance, but because this lousy movie seems to have supplanted it in some people's minds, and I don't know why, other than just the fact that they haven't seen the original. So, how about you? Any take on this? Well, we can't agree on it. Really?
3: (laughs) I did
0: not like this
3: show. I hated it. Really? I... Oh, oh. I had I have a very good friend that really liked it. Had the books and used to talk about this a lot.
1: Also like Red Dwarf. You know, you, you Ah, Red Dwarf that. I'm not really into. I have people that are really into that. I'm like, eh I know what I know why there's a connection now, let's put it that way. But I'm like, like eh. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I tried watching
3: some of these and I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> and I tried I tried. <laughs> I tried a couple of years later And I was like yeah okay <laughs> And then uh, And then you know People were like oh look It's the gold emblazoned Sequined edition Of the fourth version of the Sixth novel I'm like oh, okay <laughs> And so I saw the movie And this is before what's his name was in uh Sherlock um, Martin, whatever. His name is. Yeah, I know. And, uh, right, right, and I already know who most stuff is, and I liked it. That was, I said, oh, is this? This is a more version pal- of pal-
1: palatable version. Well, see, that's the what story. It, it was a very populist, simplified, um, uh, not dumbed down. I don't want to say that. I won't. I won't tar it with that brush, but it was more, like you said, it was probably more comfortable for people who did not like the original. But for somebody who liked yeah. the original, it was like, this is an abomination. What the hell did they do? They totally made it... Uh, again, I don't want to say stupid, but they made it so simple and straightforward, and it just doesn't work. And a lot of these people don't work, and the roles that they're playing, and it's just... Eh, I don't know. It didn't work for me at all. But
3: just, but, I mean, I have to admit, no, I mean, it's, I didn't say it was great, but it was definitely more acceptable. And also... They spent money on it, I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. and uh, which they did not make back, obviously. Right. It didn't do well for them. And uh, It's a tricky thing, though. You know, also, uh, I don't know if it's an analogy or not. It's like Firefly. You had this rabid, rabid fan base. Hello? Nobody watched it when it was on. <laughs> <laughs> and and he somehow convinced the studio to give him thirty five million dollars, and, and Josh Whedon made the movie, um, Serenity, and nobody went to see it. <laughs> and it's it's you know it's a it's an interesting thing because as all the fans there are for Hitchhikers, if someone even went out of curiosity, that movie would have done much better, you know.
1: Yeah, just to see it. That's yeah. true. Yeah, well, that's it's always similar. the case with rabid fandoms, because the whole idea of fandom and uh, whatever, I, if you want to call it uh, you know, geekdom, if you will, uh, is that right. they get very, very into, and there is a cult. That's a, that's probably the word to use, cult. Uh, there's a group of people that is really hardcore on it, and yet there's better part of the mainstream has no fucking idea what you're talking about. Like, what? That exists? What are you talking Why are these people excited about this? Uh, but that group of people, they all know each other, and they're like, you know, besties. Um, and speaking of which, along the same lines, and this is going kind of late, actually, but 96, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere came onto the BBCA, and I really like this one. That's why I wanted to throw it in. Lenny Henry, who was a black comedian, and he was on stuff like I actually have him on a style council. I remember after the jam, uh, Paul Weller did the uh, the style that. council. Yeah. yeah, and he had this one song on there that was great. It was this like kind of anti uh, anti racist polemic where he was on there pretending he was one of the guys that hires people at a music hall. Got him in a lot of trouble because people took it at face value, like oh he's really saying some racist shit. No, please, Lenny Henry. They're making fun of this. Uh, and then he did stuff like Chef, and he was uh, one of those Doctor Who specials where they uh, – I figure which one it was, but they had a whole bunch of Doctor Whos. Joanna Lumley was one of the Doctor Whos in the damn thing. Mr. Bean was one. Uh, so he was in that as well. <laughs> he goes – you remember watching all talk on right? You ever see that one? That was yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually enjoyed it. I don't think it ever came to DVD officially, but it was loads of fun. Uh, it was just like a, one of those children in need specials or something. Um they put this thing out called Neverwhere, and it was actually uh created by not just Gaiman, but Lenny Henry, that's why I mentioned him. Uh it's this strange oh. thing where this guy again, like sort of Doctor Whoish, he goes and he's going by one day and he helps this strange girl out, kind of like a street uh, you know, waif I guess, you know, dressed like a bum basically. Uh from these other people that are giving her shit. And it turns out that it ends up drawing him into this other world. And it sounds like a typical fantasy thing, except it starts getting really strange because the other world she brings him into is under the subway. You know, they go underground, basically. And there are some very murderous people involved. And the stakes kind of get really high. And you get people that were odd stars at the time, like, you know, Tamsin Grieg from Black Books was in this as the Lamia. I mean, it it was a very. If you haven't seen it and you are interested in this sort of a thing, like Hitchhiker's Guide or but even darker, you'll probably love this show. It's, it's worth seeing. Uh, I think it was maybe four part miniseries. Um, you know, as in terms of how the book is, or I understand they were going to try to revive it and make a some kind of a movie or some crap. I have no idea. But in terms of this actual miniseries that was out, it's it's really good. So I wanted to give that one a mention while we were talking about uh, a very the very similar Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, similar in terms of the uh, geek culture of it, I guess. Um, let's see. What else can we talk about here? How about the equator Mass? Do you remember the – not the movies because we had mentioned them when we were talking about the Hammer films, but the 70s TV series? Uh, they kind of did it in the late 70s. It became very – it was like an oh, environmental John thing. John Mills. Yes. yes. John.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was I, that was yeah. That that's very confusing to a lot of people because that was that was a uh, well, it was a bunch of episodes. Sorry, yes, cross series, miniseries, or whatever. Um, they cut that down to feature length, and actually there was that was
1: strange. A, yeah,
3: yeah. There's there's like a. A less than two-hour version, and there's almost a three-hour version, but still, neither one of them are as long as the original BBC uh,
1: showings. Yes, but you can get uh, them out there, and I think, actually, the set that I had, had the full thing yeah. and the movie. I might have sold off the movie, oh, because oh. I didn't care. But uh, it's really interesting, because it feels a bit Day of the Triffids. It's very apocalyptic. It's kind of like a the sense you know, that the end of the world is impending. Uh, yeah. And instead of the usual, I mean, there are alien stuff, but instead of that usual sort of thing. There's a lot of business about because we're talking about the late '70s, early '80s, uh, about cults and about uh, people getting involved in more pagan and whatever. Uh, I think it was kind of a comment on the druid revival, actually. Uh, and oh, you these remember people that? Getting, yes, I yeah. think people have forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I found it very, very interesting. After, I mean, maybe even better than Mass in the Pit. This is my favorite of the Quatermass things because. It is so dark and touches on more than just the usual, like, alien, whatever. You know, rightly, wrongly, yes, no, good, bad. Uh, the fact is it's touching on some more deeper, uh, not just environmental, but metaphysical sort of areas. And you have to make a choice, like, where you stand and how you feel about this kind of a stuff. Uh, I really, really got a kick out of this one. And, again, something I thought should be mentioned in the course of the show. Uh, anything uh-huh. you wanted to throw no, no, I
3: agree with you. And and John Mills is a very good choice. Uh, I I would say, in the course of time, he's he's uh, been remembered as underrated. He's an underrated actor. He's really been good. He's he usually threw himself into his roles. So I'm actually glad I got to see him live on stage. <laughs> uh really good. Uh, it was Pygmalion.
1: Oh, really? And it
3: was. Yeah, Peter O'Toole, Lionel Jeffries, and John Melvin. you remember that?
1: That's a strange setup. <laughs>
3: Peter O'Toole, John yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, of uh, course, O'Toole played Henry, what's his name? Yeah, of and, course, Henry um, Higgins, yeah. Uh, Henry Higgins, yeah, yeah. And just to see all three of those guys, it's like, wow. And it was like in the 90s, so they were all looking like human beings and really not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but – uh yeah, no, yeah, I always liked John Mills, and he was a good choice for that role. I read a lot
1: of things in hindsight people did not like John Mills in that part. I'm not quite sure why. I liked him. Uh, you know what, what it what? probably was? He came across a bit weak in terms of, like, he didn't know how to handle the problem, if you will. He wasn't, like, a strong, yeah. like, 1950s, Quatermass was going to come in and save the day. He's like, well, well, I like don't know, Tom what should I do? Or, yes. Yeah, right. yeah, right. exactly. So I think that's the problem they had. But, I mean, you had some interesting people in there as well with him. Uh, Simon McCorkindale who was in stuff like The Sword and the Saucer and The Juggernaut and Jaws 3D. Uh, Barbara Kellerman, who was in and and Sleep Sleep when we talked about the Norman J. Warren films. Uh, you know, it's it was an interesting uh, all-around sort of a thing. Um and that'll actually touch on things we get to later, hopefully. Uh like uh what was the one, uh, Children of the Stones felt very similar to that. But we'll get to that in a minute. Yes. Um Day of the Triffids actually had a miniseries around the same time. Um yeah. I wouldn't say it was as good as Quatermass but I did enjoy it. Um do you remember the, the miniseries they had in eighty one? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, I saw it and I used to have it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have it somewhere. It's uh It's not fantastic, but I kind of liked it in some ways more than the film because, once again, you don't have the stodginess of the 50s. You know, it's not like watching one of those old uh, giant monster films necessarily. It's, it's got more of a at least for the time contemporary feel. Now of course now the 80s are sort of dated themselves but it feels more modernistic and therefore uh, to any extent that this would be scary or feel like oh I'm concerned about this it feels a lot more real and present than something like you know some guy running around in a business suit and you know the, the, this brave scientist comes in and he's going to save the world from communism with the H-bomb and you know kind of horse shit you have in the 50s which is just really stodgy well, and silly. Yeah, well, longer versions,
3: serialized versions of like some of our favorite stories are always welcome because they always flesh out and in some cases <coughs> pardon me. Broaden the story like um the day of the triffits. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed part of that. I, you know, some of it was also that time period British T V was kinda of funky sometimes, was hit and miss. Yes. But uh uh, there was another one. There was another one. Uh, it was not a serialized version of The Day the Earth Caught Fire, but it was very similar. I wish I could remember the title. Of
1: that. Oh, you weren't talking about Island of the Burning Doom, the movie from the 60s, right? No, no, no. It was it was something done for British
3: television, and it was very, very close to The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Okay. Yeah, I know Island of the Burning Doom. But I, I, I remember that.
1: Yeah, I love awesome. that one. Um... So another one that came out, eh, not a little bit earlier than this, 77, I think it was, uh, was Count Dracula, uh, the BBC version with Louis Jourdan. Uh, yes. Susan, Susan Benhalian's in it, Judy Bowker. Uh, I really, I think in some ways, not every way, because I still have a, a strong soft spot for the uh, Franklin Jello Dracula of all things, which I saw in a local theater right before it closed down as a child. Right. Um, but
0: uh, <laughs> I say that again?
1: Really? Yeah, I know. People are like, oh, God, that one's horrible. No, I love it. I still have a soft spot for it. But no, no it's not uh,
0: horrible.
1: Right. But uh, I think in a lot of ways the larger than Dracula is probably my favorite. Uh, you know, I get, setting aside...
0: That
1: maybe, isn't just one? Oh, God, that's the <laughs> one's horrible. It's one of my least favorites. Uh, you know, I love the Lugosi <laughs> one. I love the Hammer one. And, Hammer ones, I should say, but you know, Horror of Dracula. Uh, but I really think that the Louis Down one was well done. Maybe, again, because it was kind of fleshed out as a mini Uh but it just felt more present. And I think that that sort of a – not so much stage-bound, but that, that sort of a feel was more intimate, and it brought more aspects of the story out, if you want to put it that way. Uh, it wasn't so – over dramatized, if you will. It was more on a human level. It was more relatable. Uh, and therefore, you know, again, I, I really think it's a decent one. It, once again, it should have been addressed here. So, uh, how about you? Do you like some
3: I hate really, it. Do you... No, I love it. It's really, I was fucking with you. It's really, really good. Uh, when I first saw it, it was on PBS late one yes. night.
0: Uh,
3: and uh, if you're. You're like me, around the same period. So sometimes PBS back in the day, the signals were not the best. <laughs> yes, I do <laughs> remember Movie aerials around. Yeah, and um, I love that thing, and uh, yeah. I I went through many so-so copies before it finally came out on I can't remember.
1: Yeah, I've got it. I don't feel what DVD company it is. Um, I hate to say B C yeah. for them, but you
3: know. yeah, it's something like that. Yeah.
1: Maybe it's BBC, but no. It's, <laughs>
3: I I really Louis Jourdan is is terrific He's he's actually almost perfect for it And uh, Frank Finley That's the name Frank Finley Frank Finley was his name Frank Finley is so terrific You know it's it's like It's funny This is around the same time period I think Frank appeared in Life Force Of all things I
1: love Life Force I mean, okay, yes, yeah. A lot of, that was seeing Matilda May around the naked
3: yet. the whole time, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, one
3: of these days we'll have to talk about Life Force, a movie like everybody loves. Um,
1: oh, yeah. It's it's better than Alien in some respects, in some respects. In other ones, it's horrible, yeah, but yeah. yeah.
3: It's like, well, it's, like it's, it's like Flash Gordon. It's like one of the most weirdly indescribable films that have yeah. so many things going for it that in one way it's jokey, but the
1: other way, you know what? This works. If they had nothing other than the ship with the space vampires in it, the whole set uh, set design and everything, and yeah. uh, Matilda May it would be fantastic, but with the whole thing of the, the vampire zombies going around taking over London and everything, it was just, I love that film. So. <laughs> Again, oh yeah. And the, and, the ending,
3: and the ending harkens back completely to 500 million years to
1: Earth. True, that is true. Um, so anyway, anyway, so Frank
3: Finley is, is in this uh and it's one of my favorite Louis your dance, one of my favorite Dracula uh yes. performances by an actor as Dracula, along with Don't Laugh. I always like Jack
1: Palance, as Dan <laughs> Curtis's Dracula. Well, that's he okay, left. you are not alone. People love that one. Uh, and I find it watchable. I really like this stuff. Maybe someday we should do one of the um, the Dan Curtis productions, not just uh, Dark Shadows, but throughout the seventies, he did a lot of great TV movies uh, and a couple of you know movie movies, like the one with Oliver Reed, their Burn Offerings. Uh, but you know, compared to something like the Louis Jardin one or even the Langella Dracula. <laughs> uh eh, it's okay. I, it's a little bit too much of Palance, the way he is. Uh, he is kind of, like, like I said earlier, he's the kind of guy that's going to come in and step on everybody's toes to make sure that he gets the, the best light and the, the spotlight. He gets all the lines and all the attention. Um... I don't like him as a person, but you know, he he makes a good baddie. He he's certainly great in a lot of spaghetti westerns for what he is. Uh I know uh Emser and um uh Joe D'Amato had no wonderful words about him working on uh what was that one he did? Avan Nero with them. Uh he's a difficult actor, he's a difficult person. Uh and therefore I don't think he's fantastic or anything, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely a good production and he didn't bring it down too much of the fact that he was being Jack Palette, so I can hear you on But
3: but Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, some of, it, some of it's good, uh, much better than
3: uh, the Jekyll and Hyde and other things. Um, yeah. I mean, if we could talk about portrayals of Dracula around what, well, Dracula was 73 for plants, this is
1: in the 80s, of course, but... Uh, well, this was 77, this one. Uh, oh, so, okay, so about the same time. Okay. Yeah, a little bit later. But, yeah, it did feel 80s. You're right. The the production had kind of moved ahead. Uh, I hate to say the production values, maybe it was because it was filmed on a BBC set, but it felt different. It was more of a crispness to it. Oh,
3: you, so. know what's, you know what's really cool about this movie?
1: We actually see Louis climbing the castle. Do you remember that?
3: The castle Yes, hole? you're right.
1: You were right. Yeah. I remember that in the beginning. They... Yeah, it was one of those, I think it was when they were starting to use the CSO, the electronic effects, but it worked pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um,
3: yeah. they look out the window, they look down, and you see him climbing. Like, wow, that's pretty good. It's from
1: the book. Yeah. So, let's see, what else we got? Here? Oh, uh, the moon stallion, I want to mention that, at least in passing. Uh, Sarah Sutton, who was Nissa on dark, uh, Doctor Who, uh, shows up in this one. And it's strange, because she's actually blind. But it turns out to be one of these odd. There's there's a subtext in a lot of British stuff from this period, and even to now in some of the audios you'll hear it, of you know like almost like a national pride sort of thing where they go back to Arthurian legend and the Celts and all this crap, uh, and the Green Man, all this pagan whatever hell, and you get a lot of that in here, Uh, and it was interesting for that. Uh, I wouldn't say it was great, but it's definitely, if you're into that sort of thing, if you want to see her do something other than Nyssa, it might be worth taking a look into. Actually, I think that's why they cast her, was because they saw her in this. Um, Casting the Runes is one I wanted to mention for sure. I really liked that one. Um, best adaptation of the same story that uh, Jacques Tourneur was doing with uh, Night or Curse of the Demon, depending on which version you saw. Uh, but it's so much... Uh, did I say scarier? It feels more intense. Uh, Ian Cuthbertson's in it. Um, actually, what's funny about it is the fellow, uh, one of the guys who was in there, uh, was named Edward Dunning. And those of you who know the Scarifiers know that that was the <laughs> that's the character's name there. So they stole this character and made him kind of doddering for this new uh, audio series, uh, played by Terry Malloy of all people. Uh, those of you who watch the Doctor Who stuff, uh, but it's a really good short. Uh, thing from 79 uh, and again you know, it's, it's kind of a riff on, sort of an insulting riff in a lot of ways uh, on no, Alistair Crowley because that's who this guy's supposed to be, Carswell uh, those of you who have seen any of these movies whether you've seen this one or the uh, The Curse of the Demon Night of the Demon one uh, Nightmare Man was around the same time, uh, that had uh, Tommy from uh, Tommy and Tuppence there, the Romantic Detectives, the Agatha Christie show, uh, which I also loved uh, Laura Fraser was in it. Uh, what, what the hell was uh, Tommy's name? Jeez, um, I can't remember. Uh, I haven't seen this in a long time. I have seen that though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Celia Imreason. oh, James Warwick—that was his name—and uh, partners is in this crime. This is on DVD. It. Yes, it is. Well, British DVD at least. Wow. Um, oh, okay. Really, really good thing. Um, Basically, I don't want to give too much of it away Those of you who want to check it out But they go on this kind of remote Scottish island And there's somebody going around Killing everyone uh, In gruesome ways And it turns out that could he be an alien Or could he have something to do with A scientific project from Russia Uh, And that's all I'm going to say It was really, really good Very atmospheric uh, Very creepy uh, you know, and you go through you know one thing after another, which is a sheep mutilation, then it's a farmer disappearing, then all of a sudden it just gets worse and worse and worse, and all of a sudden this guy that you think is uh, this wonderful cop or friend trying to help him out turns out to be something that he shouldn't be, and oh my God, you know, there's lots of twists and turns, a lot of really good character-driven um, horror drama, if you will. So I definitely recommend that one. Um, wow,
3: you made it sound so good.
1: I have to either. Search around for the damn
3: copy I got. I'll just buy it all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's a good one. In um, <laughs> Into the Labyrinth was a kid series from around this time. Um, Pamela Salem, yeah. who's in a lot of stuff, is was, was the witch in it. It, You know, it's a kid's show, but it was, you know, compared to what's out there nowadays, it was pretty creepy. You know, oh. it's... Um, Basically, they get kidnapped by this old wizard, and they have to – he doesn't remember who he is, or maybe he does. Who knows? And he keeps, they keep going through time trying to capture parts of this weapon of his and the witches after it, too. And it, yeah, it's a it's an episodic sort of a thing, and it feels vaguely Who-ish, you know, for those who are into Doctor Who. But, you know, it's a children's series, so it is what it is. Uh, along a similar line, the Tomorrow People also wanted to mention that. Uh, that has a little bit of the X-Men involved in it because these people, basically these kids, discover that they're mutants, uh, and they all have sort of the same power. They're all telepathic. they can talk to each other, and you know maybe they can levitate things or whatever the hell. There's something else. They actually came out with the, they start calling themselves Homo Superior, all the stuff like you know those into the X-Men. Um, but it's you know maybe about four or five seasons. I think four seasons, and the cast yeah. changes. And I think that's some of the failings because a lot of the people that you like will disappear, and then you start getting – in the mid-period, there's some really obnoxious characters that come in. I forget who some of these guys were even. It was like some guy uh, that was a – was was it Taiso or – who's – basically he was a – what do you want to call him? Like a beggar almost and totally obnoxious street kid. I was like, God, can you kill this freaking guy? Uh, but then later on at the end, it sort of picks up again. They get some Chinese – actually, she was Japanese, I think, uh, girl. Uh, and they had these guys who were like biker thugs. But then they end up working with the uh, the mutants and becoming their friends. Uh, very, very strange show, especially for uh, a children's show of that time. And they remade it recently pretty badly. Uh, it died pretty quick. I mean, it's some kind of CW, tweenie drama kind of a thing. Um so really? and, but, Wow! but Yes. And it ended up feeling like, you know, an episode of Arrow or some crap. I saw a couple of them like, eh, this doesn't really work. But the original or Arrow? Uh yeah. well, yeah, but that's what it felt like the new Tomorrow <laughs> People felt like Arrow. Uh but you know, we could talk about Arrow if you want sometime too. That's another story. But uh you know, this uh, the Tomorrow People, at least in its first and fourth seasons, definitely works. The second and third, eh, catches catch can. Um yeah, Children of the Stones, I wanted to mention. I mentioned that before. Great one. It's probably my favorite uh, miniseries sort of a thing, especially for a children's stuff of all time. Uh, Gareth Thomas, who was Blake on Blake 7. And Freddie Jones from the Hammer Films is in here. Uh, and Ian Cutherson yeah. again. And it's this really, especially for a children's show, you wouldn't believe this thing. It, it's a serious sort of... Hammer esque, almost like the witches uh sort of exploration of paganism in Britain. Uh and it kinda goes a little bit more crazy and sci fi meets a cult at the end. Uh but very, very worth your time. It's very moody, it's very creepy. Uh there's mind control going on, there's business with like, you know, Stonehenge and the, the stones having power and really, really they, do that, crazy.
3: they do that often. Oh, have you thought about this? <laughs> oh, in England
1: constantly they do this stuff. Constantly uh. they do it ooh, They do it all over the place. Uh, it's like I mentioned earlier with the moon Stallion. This is some kind of sub sub genre of British, um, hate, you know. Again, nationalism sounds like the wrong word because there's connotations to that. But that's what it feels like. That's what it is. It's kind of oh look, this is who we are. You know, like a uh, kind of like Japanese water running desk. You know, we are the British, and here is our background and our roots in you know Celtic lore and ley lines. You know, Arthur and whatever the hell is going further back to that, and the Green Man or whatever. Uh, Really good though Anybody that gets a chance to see Children of the Stones You really should check it out Do not think of it as a children's show Even though it technically was uh, Because if you show it to a children uh, Nowadays the parents would be up in arms And the kids would be pissing their pants It's it's pretty dark um, Storm Maidens We both had mentioned earlier uh, it's another one that actually has Gareth Thomas in it. So once again, Blake is busy. Judy Geeson's in it, who was in some Hammer films and things like that. I always liked her. Uh, and Dawn Adams, Pierre Bryce was in this, which is bizarre. was like French-British uh, co-production, if you will. I don't know if it was really a co-production, but it felt that way. Uh, and it's sort of a comedy. It's a, a reaction to the uh, – not resurgence, but the – populist uh, thing of feminism that was going out at the time because I was really kind of making waves you know, with the uh, the ERA and everything. And there was a lot of like bra burnings and stuff that came from the 60s and moved into the 70s. And it was a big, big deal. Uh, my mother was heavily involved in that shit. It was crazy. Uh, so this was kind of a... A comment on where things were starting to go, and it was actually kind of prescient for the way you see people nowadays, especially guys, because uh, they came from this other planet where the women dominated, and you have these really two beyond metrosexual, these guys are really kind of like female men, uh, one of whom is Kara Thomas, and You know, they don't know any other way than just, you know, cooking and slaving away for the women. And these bossy women, and of course they come to Earth and all sorts of shenanigans ensue because obviously we weren't like that at the time. Um, Loads of fun. A lot of people hate it for that very fact because they think, oh, yeah, things are right the way they are now. Uh, But, you know, it was a funny commentary. It, it has sci-fi in it, but it's a comedy mainly, and I really got a kick out of it. Plus, there's a lot of pretty girls running around, and Judy some being a big one. Uh, and again, it's a Blake Seven connection. I'm a big Blake Seven fan. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any comments to throw in on these as I go. I'll just keep rolling otherwise. No, uh, I remember Star
3: I Maidens. I used to watch that. And
1: uh, I think one of, the, one
3: of the actresses that was in this was also a rock folly you, I remember,
1: I think I was attracted to watching Rock Follies
3: because she was the star mate in some ice so I can't
1: actually, remember no, none of
3: them.
1: I'm thinking about. It. I said before it was a French co-production. It actually was a German-British co-production because uh-huh. a lot of the cast, the female cast, I remember there's some German girls running around in there. Uh, and yeah. again, it was very, very attractive cast. Um... Clifton House Mystery, Owl Service, Feathered Serpent. Again, uh, interesting children's series. Uh, Feathered Serpent had Pat Troughton in it, who was the second Doctor Who. Uh, Jillian Hills, those of you who know stuff like Beat Girl, uh, she was in the Owl Service. Um, Basically, the first two are more like ghost stories. Uh, the feathered serpent is more of a adventure, but it's set in Aztec times. You know, these kids I guess somehow got transported back to Aztec times and of course Trouten is the baddie in it, you know, because he's so sinister with his little face and voice. Um you know, enjoyable for what they are. I would say second tier at best, but enjoyable. You know, Dick Turpin was another one, which was hilarious because Who's Dick Turpin? You know, anybody that knows him, he was this um, highwayman. That was, was uh, Yeah, popular thing. They made him like a Robin Hood. I don't think he really was. I think he was just a dirty highwayman. But you know, the, the bottom line was he was sort of a national anti-hero for Britain for a lot many years. Uh, and who the hell is in this thing? First off, you got Alfie Bass. We mentioned him when we were talking about the slap and tickle films. Uh, Christopher Benjamin, who is Jago from Jago and Lightfoot. And who's the lead? Who do we talk about during the Slap and Tickle show when we talk about television shows? Man About the House and Robin's Nest himself, Richard O'Sullivan. <laughs> He's Dick Turpin. Okay. So, you know, again, if you're into that kind of stuff and you want to see what else these people did, worth a laugh. Uh, but it's kind of grotty. You know, if you're really into stuff like the Doctor Who episode, The Awakening, uh, you might really like this. Otherwise, eh. Um, Survivors, incredibly dark show. Uh, They actually started making audios for it from Big Finish. I never really liked this damn show. Um, Ian McCulloch was in it. Uh, Again, we're talking about from the Fulci films. Uh, There are other Mm -hmm. ones like this, like Noah's Castle, that are really, really dark dystopias. Again, about the bomb falling or whatever and civilization collapsing and people trying to make their way up. And it becomes a, a global sort of a Lord of the Flies situation. And it's so realistic, especially with the way things are going nowadays, and you can see people turning that way, especially with this political election, uh, that it's actually not oh yeah, this is great. Oh what a great warning. It's like, oh my God, this is horrifying. This could happen. <laughs> you know? So I never is really Is like, there an election coming? <laughs> 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 I wish I could say that. Mm-hmm. Um one I wanted to mention for sure was Thriller, the Brian Clemens Thriller. Yeah, of course. Most people in this country, when you say thriller, they're gonna think the Boris Karloff one from the '60s. And there were a couple of really good episodes, and I like the Shatner episodes. Uh, There were definitely some other ones that were good that were taken from Robert E. Howard and such, Um, but. There's no comparison. The the British thriller from the seventies was freaking amazing. I remember a friend of mine uh, back from grammar school used to pull over. He used to watch on Channel Eleven. Uh, those of you who are in New Yorkers, uh, they used to show all these crappy things like the the Carnation Killer or uh, you know I don't know what you know Kiss Me Kiss Me Kill Me or whatever. I was like, what the hell kind of movie is this? And you couldn't find it in any guides. If you look up like, you know, back then, like the Laren Walton Guide or whatever the hell. So what was this crap? Thought they were movies. Remember? They were, we we they movies. were movies. That's it. They They made it like they were movies, but they were actually episodes of Thriller. Uh, Uh, (coughs) So those of you who like those kind of shows uh, are sure to love this because those were actually not the better episodes of Thriller. They were just average episodes of Thriller. There were some that were freaking amazing. Uh, do you remember the one from the I, first I, season where they had the guy it, – it actually felt like a Hammer film or like – what was that one, the, the Amicus one where they had the Archetwin Hayes with the guy that came back? is like the Marquis de Sade who's behind the door, the one put up a door in a house. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was like that. This guy was like the Marquis de Sade living up in this uh, walk-up basically. there's people, these two girls, these college girls are like sharing a flat. And upstairs, something's going on. And of course, the girl disappears, and the other one eventually goes it's up it. and investigates. And there he is. There's like this killer, the Marquis de Sade type. It's like really, really dark, really creepy shit. I saw it when I was a kid. Freaked me out. Love that show. Well, weren't
3: some of these shown – you
1: now, do you remember ABC's
3: Wide World of Mystery? Around yes. 1130, 1130? Were, were some of these on
1: that? I think so. I think they were because when that's that's how long ago this was. When I was really little – that my father used yeah. to let me stay up with him and watch these things. I pass, a lot of times I passed out pretty early. Right. But, yeah. you yeah. know, stuff like Night Stalker was on and those. And I would sit there watching them with him until I passed out. Uh, really, really <laughs> yeah, good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Very dark. And to this day, I mean, it's one of my favorite TV series ever, uh, the Brian Clemens Thriller. So there is a one season of it I think they put out over here and then they dropped off and they didn't put out anymore, which is ridiculous. Uh, I think there
3: was the interest was low, but I, yeah, you can get
1: it but, Yeah, if you get the overseas set, it's a complete series. It's well worth your time. A really, really, really good show. Uh, a lot of good people not good Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, there was other ones that were kind of trying to play into the same ballpark. A lot of them being children's shows, believe it or not. Stuff like Shadows, uh, which one of which was written by, and this is a really weird one for you. Any uh, Wiccans out there, Stuart Farrer, uh, you know, the British traditional Wicca. Um, they, Stuart and Janet, his wife, wrote, uh, you know, the Witch's Bible and things like that. He was actually originally a script writer uh, before he got involved with Joe Gardner. Actually, he got involved with uh, uh, Alexandrian, so who the hell was that guy? Um, uh, Alex Sanders. Uh, before he met him, he was the scriptwriter for British TV, and he continued that job thereafter. So he would pop up doing scripts on shows, and some of them were children's shows. Uh, so on Shadows, you have this episode called The Witch's Bottle, which was like, I was watching it, and I'm like, this isn't, you know, like, a, it's, it's almost like when you watch a Marvel comic-type or type movie, and they go, and, okay, let's take out this demon with my fists. So I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? If this one was like, mm. No, this guy. This isn't that typical juvenile bullshit. This guy knows something. This is a little too close to what I understand here. And it turned out it was written by Stuart Farrar. I'm like, oh, there you go, figures. Uh, interesting, interesting shit that was getting slipped in back then. And you have people like you know Jenny Agutter showing up in these shows. Um, you know, people that were real actors and actresses. Uh, there was a one called Sky that was uh, this weird thing about like some alien kid or whatever, and. It turned out to be a big environmental show, and again, at that time, that was like really making a statement. Um, King of the Castle that was a really freaky one. This weird kid that's uh, a singer with the uh, what do you want to call it? Like a you know when they have those things like the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir over there in England, yes. uh, the King's College and all that kind of thing. He was one of those, but he was getting bullied and everything, and he lived in this again this walk up flat, and there was these kids there giving shit every time he came home. And oh, out, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, and somehow he wound up getting into I don't know if it was his dream world or whatever, trying to deal with this stuff or what, but he wound up getting involved with a janitor and finding the sub basement. He kind of went down the elevator shaft, and again, sort of like Neverwhere, he lives this out in a different world where all these people are now, you know, monsters and wizards and you know whatever the hell, and he's got to go and find his way to a key. It becomes very sort of almost like a D and D sort of a thing, but it's not. Uh, very, very interesting show, for, especially for a children's show. Um, ghost Stories for Christmas, that was a big thing that they did every year in England. I think they started back in 1971 or 72 or something, uh, where every Christmas they would show a – usually an M.R. James story that they would make into a movie. Um, I guess it's sort of like in the tradition of Dickens with his three ghosts getting visited. So here's, here's your ghost for the year. Um, one of them I really wanted to mention right off which was uh, the stalls of Barchester it was one of the earlier ones Uh, and apparently there are uh, again pagans running around through his uh, church (coughs) excuse me Uh, because of some uh, I I don't know if it was like a tree or some shit. it was was a while since I've seen this one Uh, but it wound up right into the pews of the church itself, and it's interesting because if you go to England or Ireland or Wales or whatever, you'll see a lot of churches there, be they Catholic, be they Anglican, be they whatever, will have images of Pan, and they'll have uh, Celtic crosses, and they'll have things that are not traditionally Christian, things that are more Older religions and you know nods to their pagan roots, despite the fact that they were you know nominally Christian, despite the fact that they were operating under you know the boot heel of Constantine or whatever the hell. Uh, it, it's almost like voodoo in that sense, you know, where they say, okay, yeah, we, we're lighting a prayer for you know whatever the hell Saint Demphin or whatever the hell, and it's really like ogun, you know, that that sort of a thing. Uh, and it addressed that. And I feel like, okay, this is really interesting. But anybody who's read M.R. James know that these stories are kind of strange, and did they really happen? And it was really just all in his head. And uh, But some of them are really good. Uh, there's definitely ones worth seeing in there. Um, the Stone Tape was another one. Uh, Peter Sazdy directed that one. Uh, Jane Asher was in it. Uh, Ian Cutherson again. People make a big deal out of it. Uh, it's not that great. Probably because the lead actor in this one is a real son of a bitch. He spends his whole time screaming at everybody. Uh, and it's just dark. You know, There's no, quote, happy endings to be found in this one. That's for sure. Uh, not that there isn't any of these, really. Beasts. There was another series like that. They had a lot of them. Um, they had a lot of them. I don't want to cover
3: every one of them, though, because no. there's just so many of them. and, and Exactly.
1: You know, uh, it's, it's a bit much.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, so, actually, let me at least get to two here that I really want to touch on, which is my favorites. Uh King of the Cat. – I'm sorry, King of the Castle. Okay. Adam Adamant lives. Yes, Adam Adamant lives and Zodiac. Uh, because Adam Adamant was – first off, I'm telling you, and I said this to you off air – this is where David Tennant got his Dr. Who from. He was being Adam Adam and Gerald Harper. Uh, no question about it. Um, basically, he was a Victorian – he was working for the government, so I guess he was sort of a spy.
0: But,
1: <laughs> and he was in the middle of chasing this guy, which is – that was another part that was lame. He had like a recurring villain that really didn't recur too much called The Face. Uh and he got tricked into uh, basically getting knocked out and put to sleep. Again, another influence for Austin Powers. He got frozen in time for, I don't know, whatever it was, 100 years or something, and woke up in 1966, swinging London. Uh, and he's walking around acting like he's still you know in 19 whatever hell it was, 1866. Um, and, you know, of course, it was a woman that betrayed him. So he has all this, like every time he's going to get caught, it's some woman that tricks him. Uh and he moves in with this dolly bird who's basically uh, like a tomboy type, uh, Julia Harmer. And then they get later on a carnival huckster who becomes their butler, Jack May. Loads of fun. I mean <coughs> – excuse me. I'm having some trouble here. It doesn't help. Uh, probably one of the most entertaining of these sort of series outside of the Avengers. I mean, even more so than Jason King for sure, uh, because this is one that my wife really loves as well. Um, You know, basically this guy is going around in like a top hat and a cape and a sword cane, going and beating all these basically everyday British thugs or spies or whatever the hell else – uh, just being who he was, you know, 100 years old, with his, with his out of date philosophies, and, you know, he's very romantic and he treats the ladies well and all that kind of stuff, uh, while he's, you know, this other girl's kind of like modern and hip trying to shove his way around the, the city or whatever. Um, I know people have issues with it. Uh, it's certainly not a complete series. The set that we have is most of season one and part of season two because obviously the BBC started wiping episodes around that time. But it's really worth your time if you want to check it out. It's got a great theme song. Uh, It's where Adam and the Ants, you know, Adam Ant, that's where he took that from. Uh, That was why he was like the highwayman and the dandy and all that crap. He took that from this. Uh, And like I said, I already mentioned Austin Powers. And is there anything you want to say about that one? Have you seen it all?
3: I hated the fuck out of this show. Really? (laughs) Really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mrs. Savage. But I really hated this show. Um, I went way out of my way to track this down way back in the days of tape training. This is before things were on DVD. This is before DVD. Right. And when I finally got a hold of it, I was like, what? (laughs) I I was alienated. (laughs) Yeah, it's got all the ingredients I like. Now, you got the Victorian London you got the time travel you got the irascible, unfriendlyish hero, possibly anti hero blah blah blah. you got the interesting stories you got all this other stuff going on, which is tantamount to being really of interest to me right but, I had to fuck out of the show i'm sorry <laughs> it, it it was the guy I didn't like him.
1: I didn't like the way he And was yet you love Tennant, which is amazing because he is David Tennant
3: vice versa. I love David Tennant. What can I tell you? I just David <laughs> I what can I tell you? I just I watched this and and granted I, I, I had open mind which is much jaded by years of other stuff now. But <laughs> I I just really did not dig it. And um okay. sorry. <laughs> hey,
1: you know, that's what makes this fun. You know, we don't agree on everything. We're not clones. <laughs> yeah, there's two things to uh, I not agree vehemently on. There you go. Well, oh, come on. Like we always have ones we don't agree on. Um, look at the Who story. Uh, anybody that wants a good laugh, you go back and listen to the uh, Doctor Who one we did. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be worse when David Tennant comes back. But, uh... <laughs> um, Zodiac uh, is the other one I wanted to mention for sure. Uh Anushka Hempel, uh who wound up we mentioned her in the past, uh wound up doing this show with Anton Rogers. It was before she did uh Who Done It with John Pertwee, which way she was a panelist all the time. And I believe it was also before That's she did the Russ Meyer. What no, she was in Vampires. That was another one, remember? Um oh, there was look
0: in,
1: look, uh, she was I'm in uh, the Russ Meyer one and she was in uh not Modesty Blaze, uh Tiffany Jones. Um But Black Snake was the Russ Meyer one. But anyway, before she did most of those, she did this thing, Zodiac. And basically, it's almost like a light romantic comedy, but it's um – Again, it still becomes a mystery, sort of a thing, because every time somebody's getting killed and they have to solve it, he's this sort of uh, upper crustish guy who got forced from the police force. He didn't really want to, but his father wanted him to do it. Uh, otherwise, he's not going to get his inheritance or some crap. He's basically forced to do this. Uh, so he's like a reluctant cop. And she is basically just some, you, you would think ditch, but stunning, stunning looking woman, really gorgeous. Uh and you know, she's got this wonderful flat and really aesthetic, dress is gorgeous. Uh and her whole shtick is that she is a astrologer and even though he's going around, you know, doing the usual manual detective type stuff, okay, interrogate this guy, get this piece of information, whatever, she ends up getting the answer long before him just by you know, throwing down the charts or whatever. Hello, let me get his birth sign or whatever, and he goes and works out the, the zodiac thing for it. It's a really weird conceit and yet it really, really works. I mean, I could see people that are looking for something serious saying, oh, God, this is so light and fluffy. But that's kind of what makes it work. And, you know, for the guys out there, she is really a fucking knockout. There's no two ways about it. Uh, definitely keep your eyes glued to this one. Uh, it was only six parts, though, unfortunately. I wish they had more. Uh, but And I think the guy that wrote it was behind the uh, Public Eye. Anybody who remembers that series? Um, so, yeah, I definitely want to mention those. The only other ones that we really need to tackle at some point in history, and not necessarily now, is ones we had mentioned earlier The Saint and The Avengers really need to be addressed. Uh, Oh, and
3: I thought of a third. I thought of a third, uh, though Secret Agent Danger Man.
1: Yeah, um, I'm probably more familiar with The Prisoner, but yeah, that's true in the Goon series before The Prisoner. That's actually the one how he got The Prisoner made, was because of his popularity on Danger Man. Um, Oh, yeah, we we should definitely
3: do those, yeah.
1: But one you might want to toss off before we close out here. the you remember The Champions? Because that's a really weird one. We're talking about weird oh. shows. Oh, we could do that tonight.
3: Okay. okay. Yes.
1: Let's kill that one off. <laughs> Lou Gray did another one. And this one, I mean, you can describe it more if you want. Stuart Damon's in it. Uh, this girl, Alexandra Bastedo, who's – okay, she's not as irritating as what's-her-face-from-department-ass. Uh, but she's kind of – Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh,
3: uh, Alexandra Bostado was is like the blonde neary dawn porter. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But not as bad. Uh, but people, oh, who was the other guy? Stuart Stuart Damon no. Stuart Damon, Damon yes.
0: Stuart William Damon
3: Gaunt. Yeah. yeah, William Gaunt. Strange looking William Gaunt, too. Yes. Um and this was similar to uh do you remember we talked about the Persuaders earlier where there was the the judge, the elderly British gentleman, the movie Summer's British, was giving Tony and Roger their assignments. Yep. This show too had a uh a guy, mysteriously also bearded, also older assuming uh, British uh giving assignments. So the essentially the story is these people were on a plane that crash lane in frickin' Tibet. Yep. And uh, mysterious monks, you know, in quotations. Uh, save them, and they all have superpowers now, and their powers are various. <laughs> well, no, one guy could jump. One person, well, more than one person has telepathy. And um, I actually like this show. It lasted two years. Um, a lot of people don't like it. It's, yeah, because you're one of them. Huh? Yeah, it's one very, of them. Yeah. It's very quirky. It's it's well the problem is nobody's likable.
1: Yes, that's it. that's it. They're all kind of assholes. It's got that <laughs> thing that I was talking about before where it's that red scare sort of thing. They're always going up against the Chinese communists or the Russian communists. Uh they're weird conceited about having the superpowers and I think they also like the tomorrow people talk to themselves mentally like telepathically, yes. don't go there. They drew- uh, There's it, a lot so- of
3: Close-ups of, of eyes, and they're like, can you hear me, Moffat? Can you hear me? Yes, Tom, here. you. know, that whole thing. There Which is, was hysterical in, in one aspect, right? Yes, it is. There was a
1: movie <laughs> called Spy. Anybody that knows the Japanese films, unfortunately, yes, never sir, even Japanese it pisses me all... off. Uh, that was similar to this, but it was much more entertaining, because that had a lot of elements of, like, you know, Terror of Mechagodzilla in it, if you will, or, or the sure uh, the that. Japanese Dracula films, you know, uh, Chiyo Tsubara, right. or whatever it was, uh, Evil of Dracula. This this one here is the same kind of idea. It's almost like a proto-scanners in a way. I mean, nobody's head's exploding, but, you know, uh, where they're all telepaths, and you got some of the Tomorrow people where they're sort of mutated, because, you know, whatever happened in this crash, but I don't know. I mean, for something that should be a sort of proto-superhero show, and already you're talking about, okay, it's a level of dumbness, but all right, you can enjoy it, you can not enjoy it, whatever. It doesn't get there. It's just kind of turgid and well, unlikable. And...
3: Well, the thing you may have forgotten, because you dislike it so much, <laughs> <laughs> is in season two, in the second season, which I guess they knew they were going to wrap it up, yeah. they start putting in these little hints that these fuckers all died and so um <laughs> and the they're dead heads <laughs> yeah 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 they, they they give these little hints that they, well they, they actually may be dead, <laughs> so' <laughs> it's all all of a sudden, like from well, the second or third episode, season two, they're all of a sudden, which I famously have dubbed i want i want royalties for this flashbacks to scenes you never saw before, and so. <laughs> Uh, it's true. All of a sudden, there's flashbacks to like we never saw this. How can it be a flashback? <laughs> and so uh, suddenly you start thinking, oh well, maybe they're dead. <laughs> so, so that puts a whole different spin. It makes everything much weirder. And
1: so the second
3: season's not as good as the first.
1: But you didn't I like it all. The- I love the way you put things. You're as bad as me. You're so blunt. You can tell we're from the same area, basically. Uh, (laughs) He's like, yeah,
0: those fuckers are all dead. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Excuse
1: me. Uh, Both
3: are all dead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, because the Saint and the Avengers may take a little bit more time than we want to waste here since we're already a little over, uh, I guess we'll close it out. Uh, So next week we will be doing the final episode in Season 2, which we're going to be talking about Edgar Wallace. Uh, who would have ever yeah. imagined that a turn-of-the-century British mystery writer would prove so influential in post-war Germany? And yet the surprisingly prolific German Creedy became the staple of Titanic cinema throughout the 1960s with colorful, serial-inflected comic book-style Edgar, Brian Edgar, and Faux Wallaces, comprising what seemed to be the entire filmic output of the Central European nation for over a decade, tagging the similar-related Dr. Mabuza. And hey, that pretty much covers it for Germany during that whole decade. Uh, so join us as we talk Harold Reinhold Eddie Arendt, Hulkin Fuchsberger, Heinz Sacher, Klaus Kinski, and Karin Dorr, plus the more sedate British B feature variant series, only here on Weird Seasons and the Gold Mines. As we talk, hello, here speaks Edgar
0: Wallace. (laughs) uh,
1: That is it. So, uh, anything else you want to say before we close out? No, just thank everyone for listening. Yes, thanks for uh, putting up with us and all my coughing tonight. Uh, and we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our little chat about British cult television. Next week we'll be talking Edgar Wallace. Uh, if you're a filmmaker, or musician, if you can join us here on air. Email us. Uh, drop us a line at our Facebook page, uh, facebook. dot com forward slash weird scenes one, or our website, uh, weird scenes one. wordpress. dot com. Weird scenes Inside the gold mine, brought to you by the Big Papa Online Network. Online.